Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. We are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Signs, part two in our Shamal Anthology. Hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my partner in crime, Julio, my Meryl, in this case, <laughs> to my Graham. Uh, the hoak to your Mel. Yes. As we are here for part two of the Shyamalan Anthology, as M. Night Shyamalan is certainly bringing something special to, to the table, what I think is widely regarded as his best film. I mean, obviously, The Sixth Sense, as we've talked about, was a game changer, and literally everyone has been trying to make a Sixth Sense moment again since that movie came out. Um, Shyamalan himself has been trying to do that. Yes. It, hilariously, other people have done it much better than him. He's failed almost <laughs> every time he's tried to do that again. Uh, but yeah, Signs, the 2002 Mel Gibson joint, uh, or excuse me, it's an M. Night Shyamalan joint, but a Mel Gibson vehicle starring the still wet behind the ears and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed Joaquin Phoenix. He was still a few years away from winning that uh, Oscar for Walk the Line. Not to be... <laughs> <laughs> Not to be left in the, the shadows, though. We have Miss Abigail Breslin, who I have no idea how even old she would have been here. You want to guess? Maybe four? She talks like a two-year-old. We know that she was really talented later on. So She's just such a great actress. Really precautious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, looks like she would have been five, five or six when they filmed this movie. And then, of course, just the most recent export from the Culkin compound in uh, Rory Culkin about a... Not about. He was a literal decade away from his career-defining role in Scream 4. But that's uh, all in the future, and we're going back to the past for this. Julio, would you agree with that statement? This is probably his most celebrated film, M. Night Shyamalan? If we are discounting The Sixth Sense, then I think that this is the one that is um, like the consensus, right? Like most people would agree with science. It's like Because you have people that... And I'm, I count myself among them, people that will say that Unbreakable is his best. But that that movie has as many detractors as it has fans. I'm one of them. Yes. <laughs> I was trying not to get into it, but yes, you're wrong, Alex. But th- that's all right. That's that's a Shamal anthology for, for a different time. That's volume two. Uh, <laughs> but with science, I think that most people would... You know, I don't think anybody hates it. Very few people actually hate it. It's more like, oh... If I don't like it, I can at least respect that you like it. Whereas, you know, other movies like The Village, right? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people that like The Village. But if you like The Village, you're instantly considered like an idiot. 
if you like science and somebody doesn't like science, I don't think science. I don't think that they look down on you. They're just like, all right, well, I guess I guess aliens are your thing. Yeah, I would. What I was going to throw in there is I would say this this maybe even probably stood the test of time a little bit better than uh, the Sixth Sense. It feels like I talk to a lot of people that are still really on the science bandwagon versus just Sixth Sense. Oh, it was great when I was a kid, that type of thing. Whatever the case, part two of our Shamal anthology coming off the heels of our personally successful performance with the live stream for the Cure, and obviously the gentlemen there uh, outdid themselves, and because of the money donated during our, uh, did we do a half hour or an hour? I can't even remember. We did an hour that felt like 15 minutes. Yeah, that's what happens. Yeah, we, we get it a whole hour, but we just ramble on that it goes flies right by. So part two here, if you hadn't checked out our last episode and want to go back and do so, we covered the last airbender. We started at the bottom, working our way, of course, climaxing with uh, the sixth sense. <laughs> Horrible choice of words. Not, come on. So That's what that word actually means, but then... The adult film industry had to come and take it. <laughs> if this is your first time joining us here on The Contrarians, we greatly do appreciate it. If you're a returning listener, you know we love y'all. Give us a minute here while we explain what we do to the newbies, the newcomers. Do people say newbies anymore? I don't know. To our new listeners. Millennials do, but we're <laughs> past that. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. We find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated. One of those shiny red tomatoes, those patented logos known as certified fresh a lot of the time and uh we will make a case for maybe why that movie is a bit overrated a bit overstated and kind of some of the negative aspects that critics missed or just chose to ignore uh we typically shoot for about 85 percent and above uh to make the shamal anthology work we're going a little bit uh different here we're bending our rules a little bit as signs is only 74 percent on rotten tomatoes still a very good reception critical reception um, so in the first portion of this podcast, Contrarian's Corner, we will be bringing signs down a peg, bringing it down to earth, if you will. Uh, <laughs> uh, do you feel, because I think that like a couple of other movies that we've done in the past, that this was much higher in the tomato meter uh, I, at some point? I just assumed, yeah. So we could say that we're just looking back at its history as a yeah. fresh movie, and then slowly, much like M. Night Shyamalan, it started falling from grace. <laughs> Uh, and then we also will find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated, one of those nasty green splotches known as Rotten, for example, our previous episode, The Last Airbender, and we will make a case for that film's positive merit. And believe you me, it was quite a chore doing that with uh, The Last Airbender and some of the other movies we've done in our time here. Uh, but that comprises the first portion of the podcast here, Contrarian Corner, where we strive to prove that anything... That art is not only subjective, but you can be over the moon or you can be cynical about anything you choose to be. Julio, we eventually do get to how we really feel about these films, though, and that comes in the second half. That's right. In the second half of the show, aptly titled Real Talk, that's where we tell you how we really feel. We tell you, the audience, and we tell each other. Sometimes we know already. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, with M. Night Shyamalan and Alex, our conversations have mostly centered around Unbreakable, just because... We just were in such polar opposites when it comes yeah. to that movie. Uh, so I don't think we've ever actually talked about signs uh, in, in detail, not even The Sixth Sense, which is why th- these episodes, this Shamal anthology is, is kind of interesting beyond their gimmick, because I just want to know how you feel about them. Um, and of course, now in our past, we have a, a pretty heavy discussion about The Happening. 
<laughs> thanks to the live stream. So yes, in this case, when we get to real talk, guys, I don't know. I don't know how Alex feels about science. I honestly, I not having seen it since it opened, I kind of rediscovered and had to reassess how I felt about the movie myself. So lots of good stuff in store once we get the second half of the show. Before that, we're gonna we're gonna try to be funny. <laughs> the operative word there is try. We'll see how that goes. Much like M. Night Shyamalan in this movie. (laughs) Yeah, it was... I did not see this when it came out. Um, We'll get to some of the things I remember as it goes along. My thought is I would have watched it the first time in college, but then watching it back for the uh, podcast tonight, the way some of the scenes were laid out, it made me realize that I had never seen it all in one sitting. It was one of those movies that I caught on TV here and there, and I knew the plot, I knew what happened, but... uh, yeah, this is my first time watching it cover to cover, so it should provide some interesting discussion. Now, being that this is 74% on Rotten Tomatoes, again, we're going to treat this as though it were the shiniest red tomato and the, the freshest of the bunch. But like we said, the legacy of this movie is a positive one, and I think a lot of people still hold it in pretty high regard. Um, so some of those people probably took the time to submit their reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, and what were they saying, Julio? Well, got a few fresh quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website. I'm going to start with Mark Duchsik from Mark Reviews Movies, who says, signals the transformation of a promising young filmmaker into a brilliant young filmmaker. So it only took three movies for, <laughs> for Mark to just go, He's done it. <laughs> We've reached peak Shamalanness. You son of a bitch, I'm in. <laughs> Give me whatever whatever comes next, I'm in. Um, Mark Stein from The Espectator says, Shyamalan may not be Hitchcock, but so far he's made the best 1950s B-movie of the 21st century. My God. And I say, uh, no, sir, that's the happening. <laughs> that was in his future. Does that, Is that review dated? Because I was going to say, if it was at the time of release, it's like... Buddy, it's been like 18 months. 2002. Yeah, so he wrote that right at the time of release. So it had been, what, literally less than 30 months at that point, or right at 30 months. It just bold opinions from a bold man named Mark Stein. I wonder how he feels about it now. I got to do my math right, or otherwise it's going to bother me. It was uh, 32 months, excuse me. Still. <laughs> you can't fucking crawl at that point. The The 21st century could not... Could not speak full sentences yet. I mean, I would feel uncomfortable calling anything the best or the worst anything of the 21st century now. And it's been 21 years. <laughs> you got a long ass time to go. Jeez. And now let's close with Peter Canavese from Groucher Reviews, who says, An anti-independence day, a cousin of close encounters, but most of all, a well-modulated, dread-laden, faith-based mystery. I have... Uh... Some heavy contention and resentment towards that anti-Independence Day comment. Yeah. I mean, that's you're not selling it to me that way. No. As soon as you said anti-Independence Day, I'm like, all right, done. What else is playing? Also, when you call it a faith-based mystery, I mean, I don't know if that meant something different in 2002, but definitely in 2021. God. It, <laughs> yeah. That that would like yeah, scare me away, like the just colossal eye roll. It is sad because I don't really I don't mean to usually condemn anyone for their religious beliefs. And what I mean by usually is just extremists are a different thing, but that is my entire life. Christian <laughs> comic books, Christian music, Christian movies, faith based anything, it's just immediate nope. Change the channel. We're doing something else. Uh so yeah, if you pitch this movie like that. 
people are going to be like, see ya. Fortunately, that's not what the majority of the marketing was because this movie ended up making $400 million. All the marketing had to say is from the director of The Sixth Sense. Yes. And at at that point in time, that was at the the point in time we're going to for the movie, that was good. That that wasn't, (laughs) that packed the houses. That didn't make people go, nope. (laughs) So we are going back in time to the weekend of August 2nd, 2002. As Signs, directed and written by M. Night Shyamalan, was released. Uh, released by Touchstone Pictures, I believe. That's who the signature at the beginning of the film is. And then, of course, I had to do my due diligence. Because the Touchstone signature was like a big part of my childhood. And then I wondered what happened to them, as with everything else. I knew they eventually just were defunct. But as with everything else in this world, with over the next 100 years... It will either be purchased by Disney or Amazon, and Touchstone was purchased by Disney. Slowly faded out, slowly faded away until the point where they just uh, disbanded them. It says in 2018, which sounds remarkably recent for uh, that to have happened, but it just sounds like they released like two or three movies a year for 10 years. So, So coming off the heels of Unbreakable, correct? Uh, yes, this is his third one. I mean, Unbreakable did well. This is not mm-hmm. even... I mean, this was just a continuation of the the meteoric rise of M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah, I, you know, I said coming off the heels of, which I believe I've used that expression already about three times, but coming... Uh, making things full circle, M. Night Shyamalan had a bit of a dabbling in the uh, early and mid-90s with some of just work that he had and then um, wrote She's All That and Stuart Little, which were also released in 1999, the same year as a little movie called The Sixth Sense, which, as we mentioned just a few moments ago and have mentioned on this podcast before, a truly revolutionary film. Next year followed up with Unbreakable, which I think some people, I know I did at the time. I was also 13. I thought it was like a sequel to Sixth Sense, but that's just because Bruce Willis was in it and because all the marketing material was... From the guy who brought you the sixth sense. I mean, and technically, you don't know that it's not. Unbreakable could be just the afterlife. My God, blown my mind. <laughs> and Unbreakable, did it also received positive reviews. It stands at 70% on Rotten Tomatoes, but I remember being definitely being an outlier as a teenager, not enjoying it, and especially in my adult life. And uh, But that brings us to 2002 with Signs, where it's fitting that, uh, I don't know if this was by design, but one of the reviews you picked out mentioned you know, him becoming this prolific director and one of them compared him to Hitchcock. But uh, I remember you calling out on our happening episode that after this, after signs, it was felt like he was going to be the next Spielberg, like the Mm -hmm. next guy. And this kind of solidified that with the three movie streak that he went on. Uh, Unfortunately, the four movie streak he went on after this would all but drown that fleeting thought yeah he didn't he 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 ran too fast because spielberg also hit a slump at at some point in his career but by then he had generated so much goodwill that he was able to push through until he hit jurassic park and schindler's list but Shyamalan only had like a handful of movies before he got bad so so the people turned on him a lot faster his runway was, there was no way that plane was going to sustain takeoff. It was <laughs> just too short of a runway. All right. So, Julio, going into this, you said you had seen this in the theater. I had pieces together from numerous TV viewings in college. Uh, 
for the purposes of the podcast this evening, I watched this on Amazon Prime. Where did you fire up signs? Uh, Amazon Prime as well. It's there for free. Why not? It is. Very good transfer. Very enjoyable. I had forgotten the opening credits, just how intense and dramatic the music is. They so open as the same as it gets. <laughs> yeah. It opens with uh, written, directed, and produced by M. Night Shyamalan, and then when the closing credits begin, it's an M. Night Shyamalan film. So you know who's in charge here. You know who's who's riding the ship. And in case you didn't know what he looked like, don't worry. By the time the movie's over, you'll know. <laughs> with a budget of $72 million, as I mentioned before, made just a hair under $410 million, uh, and was fairly well-received. Julio, Mel Gibson, the star. This is something that we don't really see anymore today. Was this the last Mel Gibson vehicle? I mean, that that worked. You know, I've, I've seen some later uh, Gibson vehicles. Like he has, a, what's it called? Edge of Darkness. I think that's something that came out, uh, I want to say maybe 10 years ago. <laughs> and Well, uh, I mean, he has the beaver. And uh, I just mean in the sense of <laughs> a like blockbuster. A, yeah, a blockbuster mainstream film. I mean, we're still waiting for the Patriot too, but yeah, that's. I think that we're we're done with Gibson as a a leading man. Leading, but I mean, he's a leading man in smaller projects. What do you call this? You know, like he he's no longer. If he was ever on on the same league as Will Smith and uh, that's Tom true. Cruise, you like know, a he's no longer. Yeah, he's no longer. He's there. not one of the guys anymore. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I think that that has a lot to do with just his personal history. <laughs> He kind of torpedoed his own persona. I would say it mostly has to do with that because <laughs> it's certainly not from lack of talent. <laughs> yeah, the next year, two years after this, was the Passion of the Christ, um, and that was. I remember as like a, a, a about to graduate high school student, thinking that was the next like he was going to be the next Spielberg, starting with the Passion of the Christ, and what was that movie he made a few years later? Was it Apocalypto? Apocalypto. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so he took it from Shyamalan. That's what you're saying. <laughs> We're here to bid farewell to Mel Gibson as one of the superstars <laughs> in Hollywood. It's almost like he knows it, too. As he plays the character of Father Graham Hess, uh, a former pastor, preacher, uh, priest. He is there with his uh, on an isolated farm with his daughter, Bo, played by Abigail Braslin, his son, who has asthma, Morgan, again, played by Rory Culkin, Culkin number five. And uh, his younger brother, but honest to God, just based on how boyish Joaquin is in this, he could have just been his older son, <laughs> Merrill. As Wikipedia says, a failed minor league baseball player. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. So Mel Gibson is a single parent. We find out very quickly that his wife is deceased. She had died in a car accident, a single car accident uh, six months prior. She was on a walk and unfortunately got hit by a car. Uh, we go right in. That's something about this movie that is a bit disorienting because especially with the, uh, table that had been set by M night Shyamalan up until this point, you, it's a slow burn. You take some time and this, it's just right into the thick of it. The signs start to appear. There's crop circles that have been made and, you know, weird shit's happening. These dogs are going crazy and it, you know, we have the benefit of time now, but, you know, trying to watch this and put my mind in the place of where things would have been at this time, it just goes too fast. It moves too fast. And that's 
things start to fall off the tracks and, and it's proven with the history. This was kind of the beginning of the downfall for M night Shyamalan as what's proven is when he rushes things, that's when shit falls completely apart. He took his time with the six Sense and unbreakable. And I think that's why those are, you know, were his crowning achievements. Yeah. I, I, I felt like, I felt like M night Shyamalan figured it out ahead of us that, that he really wasn't as talented as everybody else was saying. <laughs> You know, we didn't notice. We, we It took us a few more movies. But I think that by the time that he was done with Unbreakable, he was like, well, what the fuck do I do next? <laughs> I'm all out of ideas. <laughs> and people are expecting so much. And so he just kind of threw, threw together this half-baked story about aliens. And you can tell it, as the movie unfolds that he is no longer... It's not that he's making it up as he goes along, but almost, right? That's what you're saying. Like, he just rushed into it. There's no build-up. There's no foreplay. He's like, hey, you saw the, the crop circles in the in the poster? I'm just going to give you the crop circles. I constantly felt like he was running out of room. Like, you know, he was running, and then he hit a wall, and he's like, ah, uh, what do I do next? And then he would, like, take a left and then keep running. You know, like, the movie just lurches. <laughs> the, the plot of the movie lurches forward and then stops. And then there's just, like a lot of close-ups of Mel Gibson's face, and then everybody talks really slowly. And then suddenly, oh, something weird starts happening again. They, they, you know, the movie runs forward a little further, and then it stops again. It's just weird. It's the command of storytelling that we came to expect from him after his first two movies is no longer there. It, it feels like it's shaking, but we were under the spell. Like Anybody that watched this movie when it came out, he had built up enough goodwill to lead you to believe that he knew what he was doing. And, you know, in my case, you know, you would realize at the very end of the movie that, oh, no, he didn't really know anything. <laughs> he knew as little as the rest of us. Yeah, but he knew to really piss me off in this movie with the, I didn't think to check does the dog die.com because <laughs> fucking Rory Culkin kills a dog in the first 10 minutes of this movie. I guess the what's going on in the air and everything is making these dogs go crazy. So the dog tries to attack. Um, Abigail Breslin, and he stabs it with a fork. My notes I just have no with about 10 O's as, <laughs> man, that that always sucks. Well, and then he does it again later in the movie. It's just, yes. it's such a cheap emotional button. We were talking about that. I think it was on the one of the patron segments that, you know, mm -hmm. about just cheap buttons that filmmakers can push. And killing an animal, uh, torturing an animal, that's like, that's an easy way to get an audience reaction. It's, a, it's way beneath good filmmakers but here Shyamalan just goes to for the cheap trick twice in the movie and it, you could have done something a lot more interesting I mean that's cool that he's that the aliens are sort of the, the the presence of the aliens is driving animals crazy even before humans have noticed but surely you could go somewhere more interesting from there instead of just mm -hmm. having them kill the dog absolutely uh, we get a reoccurring character who's a police deputy and we find out eventually she was the one on site and the one that delivered the news to uh, Mel Gibson to Graham that his wife was going to die. Mel Gibson is called to report the vandalism to his crops. He calls it in. She's on scene and she calls him father. It's the first example we have of him saying, stop calling me father. So, Did you think she was his daughter? <laughs> <laughs> father. No, I, I didn't think that. That would have been quite a twist really early in the movie. Mel Gibson had a kid and he was like 14. <laughs> yeah. That kid spent the, her entire life trying to just make him proud. She went to police academy and everything. He still <laughs> won't recognize her. I'm not your father. 
Get away from me. Uh, she explains that there's been, you know, some local hooligans have been causing a ruckus so that she just surmises that's what it is. Later that night, we get uh, the line from the trailer that I remember so near and dear. Abigail Braslin wakes up, Mel Gibson, and she says, there's a monster outside of my room. Can I have a glass of water? Just like that. Like, there's no break in the sentence. It's just like one long run-on sentence. Do you remember that from the trailer? Uh, no, I remember it from watching the movie <laughs> earlier. <laughs> it's, just, it's so bad. I feel, I mean, it's, I kind of have the relief of knowing that Abigail Breslin survived this movie. Like, that that dialogue didn't, didn't just kill her career, but it could have. Thankfully, you know, she went on and... and became little miss sunshine but uh that's that is terrible and uh, uh, you don't do that to a kid <laughs> fucking chris klein in election reading his cue cards <laughs> yeah she has some weird thing about water she has constantly just riddled around the house her glasses of water because she always finds something wrong with them i wonder if that'll come back into play later in the movie i'm not entirely sure <laughs> it, that same night though i believe it's that same night where Joaquin, where Merrill and Graham hear a disturbance outside and they decide to team up and go out there and chase off whoever's out there. And it's played like for laughs, like a comedy sequence, like they're running out and Joaquin's saying, I'm going to beat your ass. And Mel Gibson's doing the straight man thing of like, oh, I'm getting really angry. <laughs> and it's one of those scenes where it's uh, good actors acting like they can't act. <laughs> yes, it's, it's Mel Gibson trying to play the Steve Carell character from Anchorman. Like, loud noises. <laughs> it, I, I don't get it. The, 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 how how did you feel about the comedy? There was so much comedy in this movie. I that's the one thing that I didn't remember, and uh, it doesn't work. <laughs> that's the worst part. If 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 I I wish that the case had been that I had forgotten how funny science was, but no, it I'd forgotten how hard science tries to be funny and fails. Mm-hmm. It, like Joaquin can kind of get it. The problem is Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson is not a funny guy. He can be funny. Like I've seen funny movies that feature Mel Gibson in one way or another, but he is uh like he's intense. He's an intense kind of performer. And yes. here Shyamalan asks him to I mean he put him in a, a checkmate basically. He told him, "Okay, I need you to be almost emotionless because you're mourning the recent loss of your wife." So you have to be almost dead inside. But I also need you to be really silly <laughs> and say really stupid shit <laughs> so so that the movie's kind of lighthearted at times. It's just, I mean, Gibson can't pull it off, and I, I don't know how many people could. You know, uh, Joaquin, he has a completely different kind of energy, so he's a little more on his uh, in his element when, that, when all the weird tonal shifts happen. But in the end, what that causes is that Mel Gibson looks even worse any time that... Uh, uh, his character and, and Joaquin's have scenes together, which is a lot. Yeah, and as we've discussed before, Joaquin, I mean, we've discussed his lowlights with Joker, but, you know, <laughs> the master and some of the other things he did, Inherent Vice, it is capable of, he is capable of being funny in certain aspects. Uh, but exactly to your point, that's not Mel Gibson's calling. So some of this is just kind of cringe, turn away from the TV type thing, which shouldn't be because you got a, Clash of the Titans here in terms of two monolithic actors on stage with Mel Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix. But uh, M. Night couldn't help himself. He just had to get his licks in, had to get his laughs in. He said to himself, this is this is how I'm going to win over the audience. Not the aliens, <laughs> the laughs. <laughs> They'll think it's about the aliens, but it's really about me going back to my Stuart Little roots. <laughs> and then Abigail Braslin comes in and says, you know, 
everything's on the same channel on TV. And this is where we learn aliens are here, baby. Which it's funny because this the design, the the crop damage that was done on Mel Gibson's farm, like the insignia, the the design that was carved into his crops look exactly like what is in India. But in India, they are like, holy shit, aliens are here. And then in rural America, they're like, oh, those drunk brothers down the road did this perfect work in your crops. And, you know, just got got some hedge trimmers and they just did a hell of a job with the tapestry here. So it just goes to show you, you know, America's the last place to take anything seriously. Yeah. And that poor cop doesn't even get a chance to redeem herself because they basically write her out of the movie. Uh, now i mean we'll see her in flashbacks but that's it the last thing she does before she exits the movie is i guess take it upon herself to give mel gibson some some uh psychological advice she's like hey you need to get out more take your kids out for a walk <laughs> never mind that aliens might be invading our planet go get them some ice cream so graham takes her up on that and takes the kids to town uh, they go to the bookstore um why does joaquin phoenix go to the recruitment office for the military that matter never never comes back <laughs> it's just it's just so uh it's so we can uh, learn about his backstory about how why he is a failed baseball player really he just went on that little side quest so that the audience can get some exposition uh well that's where you're wrong because he actually went on that side quest so we could get a fucking cameo from michael showalter that was michael showalter coop he was, he, yeah. You didn't notice that he's like got his fucking Johnny Ramone haircut and his leather jacket on. Uh, I, I thought that maybe he was an actor that I should have recognized, but I, I definitely didn't. He was just there though, because like uh, to demonstrate the dumbass bully from you know youth that has no other prospects in life, so he just had to join the military. So he's there and to make fun of uh, Joaquin and exactly what right what we learned is that he was at one time a prominent not prominent but a prolific minor league baseball player that had a record for like the longest home run two of them or some shit but we also learn he has the record for the most strikeouts as michael showalter reprises the role of doug from the state there with the uh, exact delivery and cadence julio i know you probably haven't seen the state but he just has this character named doug who's just kind of this badass and just i'm doug and his catchphrases, and I'm out of here. And that's all I was waiting for him to deliver. And But he gets fucking punked by Joaquin Phoenix, who falses him. You know, flexes like he's going to hit him, and it scares him. Do you think that Shyamalan included Showalter because he, by this point in production, he realized that Mel Gibson was not giving him the comedy that he needed, that he had put in the script? He's like, I need something stronger to signify that this is all supposed to be funny. Get me the guy from the state. It's possible. Or he was like trying to, at this point in the movie, the more artsy folk in the audience weren't ready to laugh until they saw Michael Showalter. They're like, oh, <laughs> yes, Doug is here. I can laugh at this now. The most important thing we get from this, uh, in addition to the exposition, is the line that Joaquin says where the recruitment officer asks him, do you really have the most strikeouts? And he says, it felt wrong not to swing. Wonder if this is going to come back. <laughs> yes. Do you think that'll come back, Alex? <laughs> That's the tagline of the movie. <laughs> so we get a uh, Mel Gibson going to the pharmacy, the uh, pharmacy aide there, and the lady that works behind the counter basically has to go to confession with him, even though he keeps stating, I'm not a priest. And she's just like, well, it could be the end of the world. 
uh, at the local bookstore, we get the truthers that say there's really nothing going on. These movies, we talked about uh, Contagion, I think, on one recently on a Patreon exclusive. This is not as fun after having lived through COVID, the <laughs> characters like this in movies, because it's really one of the things you have to think about. If tomorrow our world was invaded by aliens and there you was know, like... All you had to do <laughs> was wear a mask. Well, no, even like I'm just saying all those crop circles, even if there's video footage on the news of aliens coming down to Earth and like fucking vaporizing people, there will still be people that will say that's not real. They will see aliens vaporize people in front of them and say, "Ah, you, you got a better chance of getting hit by a bus going down the street, like that type of thing. And Yeah, they'd be like, uh, I can't wait until after the elections when the aliens mysteriously disappear. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yes. It, yeah, but like I said, it's just it's not quite as fun as it, it would have been before the pandemic that I guess technically we're still living in. No, technically about it. We are still living in it. And there's <laughs> still people that don't take it seriously and... 20 years from now, we'll say that it was never a real thing to begin with. We're still in the basement. Yes. We're trying to find the coal chute to get the fuck out of there. <laughs> um, but this is, uh, I mean, yes, it's its definitely not funny now. But I would argue it was never funny because Mel Gibson just can't sell the comedy. I mean, I its a, this is a really good example, actually, because this is a scene that it's not even that, oh, we're talking about something serious and there's a little bit of quirky comedy. This, this whole thing at the pharmacy is just straight up a comedic scene. It's just meant to be, yeah. you know, you could put it in a Judd Apatow movie and, and it's like, oh, you know, minus the the language, like, you know, Apatow would throw in a few fucks in there, but uh, and it would go on for much longer. But still, this is, it's it's comedy. It's comedy. And Mel Gibson is playing it straight. Like, he's not being, he's not even trying to be funny. <laughs> just, he's just looking at her and downplaying it. And she's a married weaver. I've seen her. She's kind of like a, maybe not back then, but now she's a recognizable character actress. I've seen her be funny and she's doing what she can right now, but Gibson has given her nothing. So that, that scene is just dead in the water. We see the family having lunch. They have a pizza. They had like a local pizza place. And uh, an ominous <laughs> presence wanders into frame. A mysterious man wanders by. M. Night arrives and we get the, just like these longing, very dramatic shots on his face and very, um, I used the word ominous already, but brooding is the word I was looking for. Shots of him, and then Abigail Braslin says, who is he? And we as a nation, as a world, at that point, we're still asking ourselves the same question. Who is this guy? That absolutely had to be one of the commercial breaks when this made its way to network television. <laughs> uh, this is crazy, though. This is just... Uh... Maybe I'm wrong, Alex. Maybe maybe it's not that he knew ahead of time that he was not as good as everybody said. Maybe maybe science is where he actually started to believe that he was as good as everybody said. He's <laughs> like, "You're right. I'm great, and I can act too." Because he, I don't remember him in the in the Sixth Sense. I'm sure he's in the Sixth Sense somewhere. And then in Unbreakable, he has like a tiny part. I think he like kind of runs into Bruce Willis in a bathroom. But this is like. This is a speaking part. Like later on in the movie, he gets like a full scene with Mel Gibson. And what's going on? Like, why would you do that? Why Why would you? Like, he's not an actor. And, and as a director, he's not a great actor. You know what I mean? Like, why would you put yourself there? And I don't know. I mean, obviously, yeah, you, you watch it way after the fact. So I can't really. I know when I watched uh, a Science for the first time, I knew what he looked like. So when he showed up, I'm like, what the fuck? That, that That's him. Why is he in this movie? That's. 
you know, I think that if you're a director that nobody knows, you know, like if Terrence Malick showed up in one of his movies, like I wouldn't know, you know, that's that's an actual Easter egg. But but M. Night Shyamalan, by the time the science came out, like just he made that decision knowing that the audience would recognize him, mm-hmm. which to me speaks of a very I don't know. I don't want to say disturbing. That's that's a little too serious, but kind of like a distorted point of view as far as you know. I, I don't know what you bring to your movies, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, it's just distracting. If for some reason you manage to get through the forced comedy and you're somehow engrossed in the in the tale of science, the moment that the director shows up in in a really like slow motion, <laughs> ominous like you said cameo that turns out to not even be a cameo but like a full part later on. That's just the spell is broken. You're like, oh, that's the guy. That's he's supposed to be behind the camera. What's going on? Uh, yeah, it's really weird. Again, Julio, I mentioned the pacing of this movie a bit earlier, and it, it's just a perpetual motion machine, just really sped up. Just it just once it gets going, uh, the acceleration rate is a bit much. So within this one scene, following what we just mentioned with M Night. Joaquin Phoenix goes from completely being dismissive of what's going on and saying it's just computer nerds doing it to immediately believing it to immediately becoming obsessed with it over the course of like maybe two and a half minutes. And uh, to his credit, Graham and Mel Gibson's performance in this scene is very good because he's just clearly does not know what to believe. He's not he doesn't think it's a hoax, but he also doesn't think it's completely genuine. And, you know, due to his constant battle with faith, as we'll get to here before too long. He's a man without an island, so to speak, a mental island. He doesn't know kind of where to reside. And I really, really like that aspect of his character, and particularly in this scene. But that's overshadowed by the incredible just identity crisis or schizophrenia even that Joaquin Phoenix displays here. Do you know what I'm referring to? He's like talking shit about the whole idea of it and then immediately starts believing it. Yeah, I was trying to remember what is it? What's what's the movie's justification is it just that they start hearing the sounds from the, the baby monitor goes off monitor. and then That's yeah and then he's like oh. yeah and then over the course of the next you know 20 minutes he's staying up all night watching all the news coverage and learning everything about it and yeah it's uh oddly paced we went through all of the, we went through all five stages of grief with him in the process of fucking 30 <laughs> seconds uh how do you feel about that that baby monitor sequence because it goes on forever it does that's basically my feeling on it. It goes on a long time. <laughs> right? Every time you think it's over, they're like, oh, no, now they're climbing on top of the car. What's happening? Yeah, yeah. It, Mel Gibson's like, no, Bo, I don't want you climbing on the car. And then he just gives up. <laughs> That's like a genuine moment, though. As someone who's seen people interact with their kids, when they don't listen, it's just like, all right, fuck it. You're not going to listen to me. Do what you want to do. If you fall down, it's not my fault. So from here, Julio, Joaquin isn't the only one starting to believe because an alien invasion is imminent. The these ships are starting to maneuver their way down, or at least we think they are. They're, you know, they have stealth camouflage in the sky, but these uh, signals and these patterns of lights are starting to appear all across the world. Uh, we get, you know, the tension is just palpable at this point. Graham wanders out. God, and this is the frustrating part of white people, man. Like <laughs> he knows this shit's going on, and you can tell. We can tell as the audience. He he he's buying into this. He's believing it. So naturally, he just wanders out into a cornfield in the middle of the night with a flashlight <laughs> that's like faulty and not working. 
I've always thought how awesome it would be to uh, basically be self-sustaining, have a farm. And I, I love corn. You can't really get good corn in Texas, but you know, in the Northeast and the Midwest, you can get really good corn. So having a farm up there would be awesome. But just the idea of going into a cornfield in the dead of night terrifies me. So Mel Gibson doing this while he knows a potential extraterrestrial invasion is going on. What an idiot. And rightfully so. He trips and drops his flashlight. By the time he recovers, he sees fucking... The alien equivalent of Angelina Jolie's leg in that one dress at the Oscars a few years ago. And then he comes back and tries to downplay it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all good. Corn, the, the harvest is going to be good this season. Yeah, it's, I, I found it frustrating. And I, I mean, I guess you could read it either way I, because I didn't read it like, like he would, he believed this. I read it as in kind of like what you said earlier. He doesn't know what to believe. And to me, that is such a fundamental flaw to put on your protagonist. You, I need somebody, if, if he's going to lead this movie as he's supposed to, then I need him to kind of give a shit. You know, he, he needs to give a shit. And the problem is that Mel Gibson doesn't really give a shit for most of this movie. Because like I said, he's he's just dead inside. So he just underreacts to everything. I, I would have loved it if he was just the supporting character in Joaquin Phoenix's movie. And we were just kind of, we were following Joaquin Phoenix's roller coaster of emotions as he goes from not believing to believing and, and just kind of seeing his family fall apart. And, and then hopefully Shyamalan or a better writer would have been able to really give us more of a, of a journey, you know, his transition. But, but instead we're stuck with the guy that's just kind of, he looks the same. He, he speaks the same almost in, in every moment of the movie. So it's just very underwhelming. I wanted him to get freaked out. And of course, it was just so frustrating. He has this really close encounter with an alien. And he doesn't even run back home. Like, you know, he, he walks in the door. He goes and he sits on the stairs. And he starts talking to uh, to Colkin number five about his book. And instead of just barricading the door, <laughs> looking for the gun, it, I don't know. You know, it's just, it's not what I wanted. He says, you know, we're going to turn on the TV and figure out what's going on. Um, so they turn on the TV, start watching the news coverage. Uh, the most recent Colkin remarks about how, you know, they're going to have to change science books. And that's immediately what they say when they turn on the news, what the t- broadcaster <laughs> says. And um, so while they're watching the TV, the kids naturally fall asleep. And then we get this unreal and just an unbelievably nihilistic monologue from Mel Gibson because Joaquin's basically asking, you know, well, what's going to happen now? And Julio Graham tells him we're going to fall into two groups. Yeah, this is this is Gibson's Oscar clip, right? I mean, do you agree with that? Yes. There's one other one I would potentially argue, but they would probably side with this one due to the lighting, how only half of his face is lit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, it, funnily enough, it's also Joaquin Phoenix's Oscar clip, I think. <laughs> so so they would just play them side by side. No, no, because, uh, you know, Gibson would be for lead actor and Joaquin would be supporting. But uh, yeah, yeah, it, it's just weird. So basically, uh, so I'm conflicted about this much of the way that uh, Gibson is conflicted about life the universe and everything because I, I appreciate that it's a good performance. I, I appreciate that in a way it took the movie 45 minutes, but it finally gave me, gave me something to care about. And it gave Mel Gibson something to do, right? This finally he wakes up and he gives Joaquin Phoenix this just devastating talk about how, uh, well, when something weird happens, some people take it as a sign, a miracle, 
and kind of a proof that there is a great design and somebody's watching over us. And then there are people that they're like, no, that was just a coincidence. That was just like a freak occurrence. It doesn't mean anything. And he asks Joaquin Phoenix what he believes and Joaquin goes, and this is why it's his Oscar clip, because Joaquin tells the story of how he was making out with a girl at a party and uh, or he was about to make out with her. And he realized he had gum in his mouth. So he turned around to put the gum away. And when he came back, the girl was throwing up. And he's like, if Mm -hmm. I hadn't had gum in my mouth, I would have made out with her. And she would have thrown up while we were making out. Therefore, I believe in God. (laughs) Things happen for a reason. Seamless logic. Yes. That's the the other tagline of this movie. (laughs) Things happen (laughs) for a reason. And so he smiles and he's like, thank you, Mel. You always make me feel good. You, you, you've comforted me. And then he makes the mistake of asking uh, Mel Gibson, well, what do you believe? You know, do you believe in science and miracles or uh, do you believe in nothing? And then Mel Gibson just opens up his heart <laughs> and reveals that he doesn't believe in anything. He's like, nope, if there is a God, then he let my wife die. So, no, I don't think that anybody's watching over us. I think that we're fucked. <laughs> this is an alien invasion. It's not like anything means anything what's going to happen is going to happen and and so to hear that from a priest i imagine is even more brutal than just hearing it from your older brother as if that wasn't brutal enough but he just like looks deep into his soul and says we're alone yeah (laughs) it's not just in space that no one can hear you scream on planet earth (laughs) it's everywhere (laughs) yeah uh, so it's good. I, I I like it as as a piece of acting. I think isolated from the movie, I I I appreciate it. But once you're done with that, like, all right, please tell me that we're not gonna go back to the same bullshit that we're going through before <laughs> this this really intense moment between the two brothers, right? Like this is the moment where the movie puts its feet on the ground and was like, we're done with all the silliness from now on. It's just because you know Mel Gibson has has shown his cards, and now we know what's going on in his head. But instead, no, we just kind of... It goes back to being the movie that it was before. Mm-hmm. It's almost even worse than if that scene wasn't there at all. Because it's there, it teases us with a better movie, and then it walks away. This is also where the flashbacks begin for uh, Mel Gibson. And for us, the audience, I should say, the flashbacks begin for us as we're just getting insight to Mel Gibson's dreams. At this point, we know his wife has passed away uh, from an accident. And so this is where we begin kind of seeing how that all unfolded little by little as Noel Gallagher would say. Um, But as I mentioned, Joaquin's completely down the rabbit hole, just obsessed with this watching news coverage, you know, for as long as he's able to stay awake. Um, The kids are becoming paranoid. They're wearing tinfoil hats. It's, it's all, it's all breaking down. Um, Mel Gibson, we see receives a call and there's no one on the other line. So he, we don't know in the moment what he's doing, but he's going to confront who that call came from. We see him just walk up to a house that appears to be like desolate and abandoned, uh, but then we see a, a car sitting in the driveway, and we find out it's him. He couldn't stay away. He had to come back to have an Oscar clip of his own. Would you would you say this is a, a name that Shyamalan Oscar clip? Yes, I think I think he he gives himself enough to maybe. Uh, bamboozled the Academy into giving him an acting nomination because he's doing that thing where he's kind of recounting the past without looking at mm-hmm. Mel Gibson's uh, eyes. You know, he, he's just kind of like mm-hmm. staring off into the distance, kind of dreamy, but he's saying some fucked up shit. And then, and then he turns and gets real. 
and then and then he delivers a, a master key. class. Yeah, <laughs> just it's Shyamalan saying like, look, if I don't direct any more movies after this, I can still act. So this is my reel, just for you. You will use this for my in memoriam clip. <laughs> just him saying, uh, I just I laughed, and I, I I this is one of those times where I don't know if if Shyamalan meant for me to laugh or if it was unintentional, but his last line before he just. You know, peels away. <laughs> yes. Yeah, like, by the way, Father, I have an alien in my kitchen. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> this is where we learn why he's so ominous. He's the one that killed Graham's wife. He fell asleep at the wheel and hit her as she was out for a walk. And he just explained, uh, you know, I took this away from you, but I also took your faith away from you. And, you know, it's something I have to live with every day. And Mel Gibson is trying to, like, hold himself together in this sequence. Yeah, that's that's what's so fantastical about this movie. Like you, you're able to identify with certain aspects of him in this moment. Of like, yeah, you're face to face with the guy who you know inadvertently killed your wife, and it's taken so much away from you. And on top of that, there's this looming alien invasion <laughs> that could potentially eradicate the human species and existence as we know it. So you got me with the first part, but then I have no idea what he's going through otherwise. And then uh, also, isn't Shyamalan bleeding? There's like one shot of blood, and I I couldn't like place. It. I think I was like writing a note, and I looked up, and and then there was blood. It's there's just so much chaos going on here. But yeah, he he's clearly tra- traumatized also because Mel Gibson's like, "Did you see something? Tell me, son, <laughs> what happened? Speak to father." Uh, and then, like you said, yeah, he's just like, "By the way, there's one in my pantry. Don't go in there." And he peels off, and uh, of course, Mel Gibson can't help himself. It's human nature. We're we're all moths at the end of the day, and we're gonna fly to the light. So he just the first thing he does is go in there and walk up to the pantry, and he's like, "Hello," just again, just day one white people <laughs> shit. Hello, I'm with the police, and then eventually, if you've ever seen this movie, you know it's one of the more iconic shots. The hand comes under the the doorway, and he slices off two of its fingers. Uh, what I did not remember was that this is. This scene is back to back because obviously this is one of the more memorable scenes. And then it's right into what is arguably the most memorable scene of the movie. Definitely the most memed scene of the movie. And that is Joaquin Phoenix watching that news telecast that yep. has the footage from Brazil where we we see an alien for the first time. Joaquin's, you know, six inches away from the TV like you and I would have been as little kids playing Nintendo. You know, did you ever the NES game with Jason? He jumps out, and then you do the Joaquin, where you you, <laughs> you jump back and hand over your mouth. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The M Night was making sure to completely fuck people who went for a bathroom break in the middle of this movie. <laughs> they miss the two most iconic parts of the movie. Uh, yeah, it it is. Uh, <laughs> what bothered me. The movie actually points this out, and and but it doesn't do anything about it. You know, we're like what an hour into the movie, maybe a little longer. And by now, the the kind of like the, the improbabilities that come with this really weird alien invasion have started adding up to where it's just really hard to ignore them. So just the idea that an alien that can't open M Night Shyamalan's kitchen door is actually like would actually pose a threat is it's it's pretty silly. You know, like mm-hmm. that's it, that seems like something that he might have kept from when the script was like a hundred percent a comedy, and now, like they mention it, you know, because they at some point they start barricading their house, and and Joaquin is like, "Well, what what's that gonna you know? Is that gonna be any good against him?" And 
Mel Gibson says, like, well, they have trouble with pantry doors. Okay, well, then they're not really a threat. <laughs> you know, lock your doors. That's all you need to do. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's just a it's just frustrating to have a, a scene that's as effective as the as Joaquin Phoenix's reaction to what he sees on the TV, while at the same time having it surrounded by so much silliness. Yeah, and you had mentioned the line that Mel Gibson has about they have problems with pantry doors. And then M. Night builds in his own commercial break, fade to black. Like, it, it just fades to black. It's really the only time in the movie where it does this. It, it's just basically a reset shot. It fades to black and then it comes back. It's like, all right, back on track. As we're preparing for the attack, it's it's imminent at this point. And we get what I was going to contend would be Mel Gibson's Oscar scene in this. is It's the final meal. It's actually kind oh, yeah. of haunting because right. Mel Gibson says he basically tells the family you know pick out whatever you want for dinner and we'll make it and it's in a way he's he's literally coming to terms with the fact that this might be the last meal that they have uh so he wants to have a a cheeseburger with extra bacon joaquin wants chicken teriyaki Uh, a little girl wants spaghetti and i believe uh, colkin number five wants uh french toast there you go so they make everything there's these ridiculous Toby Hooper type shots of like all the kitchen utensils slightly askew where I think M night was just looking for B roll. And then it was like, <laughs> all right, here we go. So they go to have dinner. Colkin, everyone's like crying already before anything happens. <laughs> and then the boy asked to pray. <laughs> Mel Gibson is very insistent that there will be no prayer and he's not wasting another moment of his life on praying. And so everyone starts crying and then says, fine, no one's going to eat. I will. So he just puts together a plate like me at a buffet, just a bunch of food that doesn't match up. And and then while he's doing this, though, his voice is cracking. He starts breaking down. He starts crying. I mean, I understand he now has his morals and standards and guidance or whatever. But if he was going to go through the trouble of making these four distinctly <laughs> different meals, he could at least humor the kids into praying, considering they might be dead in the next six hours. So I don't know. <laughs> He kind of deserved to have be told that he, uh, I hate you by his son here. Yep. But then again, in the classic nature of a child, he immediately recants that and goes up and hugs his dad two minutes later. Yeah, it, it's so gross too. Like, uh, it, as a filmmaker, you have the power of deciding what you show us and how much you show us and and how you stage something. And I I am of the opinion that you should never show us people eating and crying at the same time. That's just gross. <laughs> oh, I man, don't need you're... to see it. Throwing my boy Abdulatif Kashishi under the table with that one. The exception that proves the rule. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, they don't even have time to really enjoy the food, which, and again, all those meals sound awesome. Like, that's <laughs> something that I would absolutely chow down on, all of that. Because then they got to finish boarding up the walls, boarding up the doors, windows, etc. The banging begins. Two dogs. And the, the second dog gets killed. <laughs> yep. Um Fortunately, we don't really see any of the aftermath. We just sadly hear it. Uh, my note, just an homage to Poltergeist. They're here. Um, you think this is going to be, you know, a classic example of the real terror coming from what you don't see. Because mm-hmm. we just hear the clanging and banging from the aliens. And then, of course, in the end, we just get like a lingering shot of one just standing there like an <laughs> idiot. So, it, But for this like moment in time, it's actually pretty spooky. They're banging on the doors. They're trying to get in. So they go down to their fallout shelter that they have there. Fucking dumbass Joaquin finds like a pickaxe and immediately breaks the light that's down there. So they're in total darkness. And it's so like 
I, you know, the little kid who trips and spills shit on his dad's documents, he's just like, I found it. And then just completely <laughs> breaks this light. So they're shrouded in darkness until they're able to find a flashlight. We've talked about the pacing so far, Julio. So the aliens are there. They get down to the basement and then it just drags like <laughs> it. You wouldn't think a scene where they're hiding behind a door and the door is getting banged on by extraterrestrial life would drag and get boring. But it does. Well, I think that it, this is where not that it wasn't obvious before, but it it's almost like Shyamalan goes overboard in trying to point out the fact that he is not going to show you the aliens. You know what I mean? Like he goes out of his way to move the camera away from them. Now, like before it was just that they happened to be right on the border of what we can see. But but here, like there's a moment where uh, Koki number five is attacked by an alien and we see the arm and then uh, Joaquin and Mel Gibson run to save him and one of them drops their flashlight and the camera stays on the flashlight. <laughs> Just to make sure that it's framed on something that has absolutely nothing to do with the action. It's just we just hear what's happening while we're like just staring at the flashlight. That is, you can feel the hand of the director there, which is not what you want when you're watching a movie, especially when you're like in this really important uh, scene that has such heightened emotions and all that stuff. You want to see what's happening. This is not like oh, I'm not going to show you the alien because I want to build suspense. This is just I'm not going to show you the alien because I don't want to. It's it's almost. Uh, it's almost mean. It's like, I'm going to show you the flashlight instead because fuck you. I'm the director. <laughs> so it, it was, it, it, I think that that doesn't help. You know, by now we've seen that trick before. He's been doing that through the entire movie. So by now we're ready for something else. We're ready for the aliens to show up. And then it doesn't help that, once again, the, the breadcrumbs about this alien invasion have started adding up to just nonsense because the, so Koki number five has a book that he's been reading that's kind of what, Shyamalan is using to give us some sort of a mythology about what's happening, right? Uh, we're assuming that what the book's saying is is somewhat accurate. And what it's saying is that the aliens are, the way that they're invading, they're not going to use high-tech weapons. They're not going to do anything fancy because they don't want to accidentally trigger a, a nuclear war that would ruin the planet and therefore the planet would be useless to them. So their approach is instead to engage in hand-to-hand combat, <laughs> <laughs> yes. So so they're going the plan from these aliens is to go house by house and just take on each of like every single person in on planet Earth. They're going to just take on them one on one. Like they're just literally going like door by door and just terrorizing them, I guess eventually killing them. And they're pretty shitty at it because they're not Shyamalan escaped. So they're not they don't feel like a threat. They just feel like this thing that's in the background that, you know, if M. Night Shyamalan actually pointed the camera at them and let Mel Gibson and Hakeem Phoenix have a go at them, the movie would be over. But instead, you know, it just drags. I think that's that's why the movie drags, because by now we figure out that they're not really that big of a deal. Yeah, in Independence Day, like in the first 45 minutes of the movie, they blew up the goddamn White House. Like, we knew there was danger afoot with these people. And in here, yeah, their plan is just to, like, Kimbo slice it, just get an Escalade and drive house to house, and then the driveway just throw down with whoever's in there. So one of them does get a hold of uh, the Culkin, and they fight him off, but it leads to Culkin having an asthma attack, um, and he doesn't have his inhaler. And so Mel Gibson's, like, just kind of trying to talk him through it and helping him through this asthma attack and asking whoever the higher being is not to take another one from me. And this is where we get... 
uh, more of the flashback. It's like little by little throughout it, like I mentioned earlier. And so we're seeing more and more, and he finds out here that his wife is dead, and this will be the last time that he speaks to her because she was hit by a car. It drove her into a tree, and she, ostensibly, as graphic as it may seem, uh, was severed pretty much from the waist down, and there was really no way to save her. She just had a few minutes left, but you can go talk to her. Yeah, that this is where it, it ends with him saying, is this the last time I'm going to talk to my wife? And I think fades to black to another commercial break. <laughs> And they wake up the next day. It, it's so great, too, because Mel Gibson's like, how long have we been asleep? And Joaquin says, I think 12 hours. What the? F- how could you possibly <laughs> sleep 90 minutes in a situation like that? And they passed out for like, God, that is like the type of sleeping when I was in college and would smoke like an entire bowl by myself and then wake up the next day and not know where I was type thing. Not in any situation of distress. I can't even sleep for six hours a night before WrestleMania, let alone when an alien invasion <laughs> is imminent, would I be able to sleep for 12 hours? But uh, the the important thing is they slept through the crises, and we won, baby. Earth is back. These aliens have retreated. Uh, they say on the radio broadcast, they don't know what it is, but it's thought that a primal defense mechanism drove them away. So we go back up to the living room. We think it's all good. We're going to get the Culkin's medicine. And there's that one remaining vagrant <laughs> in uh, Doylestown, Pennsylvania, that <laughs> emerges and is going to take one human life if it kills him. And he is holding Rory Culkin basically hostage. And this is where he realizes it's the one with two fingers uh, cut off. So Mel Gibson Graham realizes it's the one that he had encountered previously. We don't know if the alien remembers him or if this is an act of vindiction, but... You, I want to say like it's a tense scene, but they're all it's just like that office episode where Dwight, Andy and Michael are like standing <laughs> off with imaginary guns The they're it's Joaquin, Bo, the alien and Graham. They're just standing there for what seems like an eternity, not knowing what to do. They want to give Mel Gibson time to to remember the death of his wife once again. Uh, that must be it because we get the and now the dramatic conclusion to what <laughs> happened to Mel Gibson's wife as he talks to his wife and says goodbye and what comes of it is this just discussion of you know let the kids play and be sure to tell Meryl to swing away and that's what he tells him is Meryl standing right next to his history making bat on the wall so I guess Mel Gibson interprets this as the act of a higher being or clairvoyance or what have you but anyway yeah like Joaquin just goes absolutely off on this alien who seems to have no real defense. He does blow like a fog of some sort in Rory Culkin's face before Joaquin goes at him, but he just gets tuned up by Joaquin in this baseball <laughs> bat. And then all these little glasses of water that have been sprinkled throughout the house continue to fall on him and just burn him and incinerate him alive. Basically is what happens. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, so at some point the news had said that, uh, the aliens, their, their main defense mechanism was shooting poison, which is what he was doing to, to call him number five, but because because the kid had 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 an asthma attack, then his lungs were closed up. Whatever happened, you know, he didn't absorb the poison, so he was saved. So th- the whole thing is just Shyamalan kind of like trying to tie it all together to show you again that hey, things happen for a reason, right? It, mm-hmm. I, I I mean I don't know, you, you might disagree, but I I didn't feel like it held up, like backtracking it, right? So Mel Gibson says, "Oh, that's why he has asthma." 
he has asthma because that way he was able to survive the alien attack, you know, Colking number five. And uh, mm-hmm. so asthma happened for a reason. And then I guess, you know, uh, Joaquin is not a successful baseball player because, you know, if he was, then he wouldn't be in, in that specific moment, like at home with his bat, like, retired like on the wall available for him to like knock out the alien so you know Joaquin is a, is a failure that needs to prove himself for a reason and then the alien is allergic to water and Abigail Breslin has unfinished glasses of water all over the house that's that's her thing and of course you know that's what causes the, the alien to die eventually and so so she's quirky about water for a reason uh, okay well I mean so far so good but then you get into the 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 real business, which is the, the death of his wife. And during M. Night Shyamalan's Oscar clip, he says that, you know, he had never fallen asleep on the road before. This is the only time that it happened. And mm-hmm. that the roads were deserted the entire drive. And he's like, if I'd fallen asleep for like the 10 or 15 seconds I fell asleep, five minutes earlier or 10 minutes later, you know, nothing would have happened. Like I would have been the one that died. You know, he would have just driven mm-hmm. off the road. But because he happened to fall asleep right as Mel Gibson's wife was crossing the street, he killed her. But because he killed her, she was able to, I don't know, see into the future and be able to issue this warning to Mel Gibson to let him, you know, in a, in a very cryptic way, let him know, hey, in the future, our son is going to be held hostage by an alien. And when that happens, the what you need to do is tell your brother to use his bat to beat the shit out of the alien, and it's going to be okay. <laughs> and that's where I have a problem. I mean, that's... Because everything else, you can just go and go like, well, it happened for a reason. But surely, especially if you're attributing all this to God, right? Surely there was a nicer way of setting this up? Like, did, did he really need to kill <laughs> Mel Gibson's wife to deliver that message? Killing Mel Gibson's wife means that Emna Shyamalan is, you know, fucked for life because now now he has to mm-hmm. live with that. And then it means that Mel Gibson renounces his faith for, you know, six months, however long, you know, it happened until the end of this movie. Like, I would be mad if I was Mel Gibson. I would be even angrier, you know? I, I would go from no longer believing that God exists to believing that God exists and he is evil. <laughs> because... You know, there's no real in all the other scenarios. I think that you could kind of argue that well, that was the only way that you could get there, or or you got there, you know, without really harming anybody in the process. But in the case of of his wife dying, that is such an extreme way of of getting you know of connecting those two dots that it just doesn't feel right. And yet, that causes him to become a priest again. Like the final shot of the movie is him like getting dressed up and ready to go. It's with his little collar, his white collar. It didn't work for me. I think that that's where the movie completely falls apart. I mean, you held in there for a pretty long duration. So, I mean, that should be commended that you made it that far. But you think like Joaquin's supposed to be, you know, have one of the most deadly swings in the history of minor league baseball. And it takes them like seven or eight good whacks to get this alien down. And they don't even (laughs) seem to be like the independence aliens. They just seem to be like skinny, tall people. And it takes them a while and for yeah, a being that water can destroy, you would think a wooden, you know, a Louisville slugger could do the trick. And Joaquin's just like, <laughs> eh, eh. yeah, that's the other thing. Why would she say that instead of, uh, you know, why would she just say like throw water at it, you know, instead of because <laughs> that would be a lot more. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you're dying, in order to save the day, Mel, you'll have to answer me these questions three. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, what was going through her mind? Like, as she was dying, she saw this flash of Joaquin Phoenix beating the alien with his bat. And it's just like, all right, well, I got to convey this message as quickly as possible because I'm dying. Swing away. <laughs> it's like that thing of uh, Alex Jones uh, claims he predicted the coronavirus because a few years ago he said that the Chinese were going to introduce a chemical weapon that would tank the U.S. economy. It's just like, the, yeah, if you say enough insane shit for a long enough period, something from it will eventually make sense. That's true. And if you look at any sort of a timeline of events, you can't come up with connections between them. Yeah. So, yeah, that's ultimately, that's a very disappointing sort of fairy tale approach to reality that M. Night Shyamalan lands on at the end of his movie. Because honestly... Th- as many problems as I had with Mel Gibson as a character, as a protagonist, he was more interesting when he didn't believe in anything. You know, when mm-hmm. he was, when he gave that speech about how, like, nobody's watching over us, we're alone. And then at the end, to see him kind of, all, like, smiling and pep on his walk, his back, and just ready to give a sermon, that was just, it was pretty deflating. And so the water takes him out, and they're able to revive Rory Culkin, they think because his lungs were closed, he wasn't able to inhale any of the poison, and He's fine. He doesn't really have any recollection of what happened, but he asked someone save me and Graham affirms, yes, I think someone did. And then the closing shot of the movie is uh, we see that he's a father once more and he's back to the priesthood and he's dressed to the nines in his, uh, <laughs> I was going to say priest costume, but I don't <laughs> think that's what they prefer to the verbiage to be. Uh, does he look at the camera as he's walking away or is it just something that I felt? <laughs> Yeah, that's something you would have felt because he like buttons his collar, uh, his cufflinks, and just kind of wanders off. And then we fade, and we are we get that blue steel color of an M Night Shyamalan film. <laughs> so yeah, there was a reason for Mel Gibson's wife dying, and it was all planned out so that uh, Joaquin Phoenix and the water would save us from aliens. That's what you gotta tell yourself to cope with the loss of your wife. Go for it. But don't try to get me to buy that bullshit. (laughs) All right, Julio. I think we're about ready to move this on to Real Talk. Let's go to Real Talk. Shit, I know you. You're Merrill Hess. I was there the day you hit that 507-footer over the left field wall. Set the record. Man, that thing had a motor on it. It's still the record, right? Got the bat at home. On the wall. You've got two minor league home run records, don't you? Why weren't you in the pros making stacks of cash and getting your toes licked by beautiful women? Because he has another record most people don't know about. He has the minor league strikeout record. Hello, Lionel. Merrill's a class A screw-up. He would just swing that bat as hard as he could every time. Didn't matter what the coaches said. Didn't matter who was on base. He would just whip that bat through the air as hard as he could. Looked like a lumberjack chopping down a tree. Merrill here has more strikeouts than any two players. You really got the strikeout record? Felt wrong not to swing. And we are back. But before we get into real talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we tell patrons what they can expect on our patron feed. And we also let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. Uh, This time around, Alex, I forgot to mention it when we started the Shamal Anthology. But uh, in addition to all the other extra stuff that you get as a patron, you also get kind of a, a behind-the-scenes look at how it all began 
because uh, you've probably forgotten by now, but before we went into our uh, record-breaking live stream for the cure segment, <laughs> record-breaking by, by contrarian standards, uh, by contrarian standards, uh, we we kind of had a conversation about how we we were going to tackle the happening, and uh, we talked about it more than we usually do when we do a, a regular episode. Most episodes we just kind of find out what the other one wanted to do as we are recording, but in this case, due to the nature of how we were handling the happening, we needed to to have a pre-recording powwow, a pre-live stream powwow, and we recorded it. And so, if you're a patron, that that should be on your on your feed already. It probably wasn't on your feed by the time the last render dropped. I think uh, an interesting behind the scenes of Contrarian's uh, machine. But also, I mean, of course, if you're a patron, you're getting a lot of other deleted. Uh, clips things that didn't make it into the the final episodes and you get to see our pre-recording notes and then of course you get access to contrarians after hours that's the the post show the side show the spin-off show where we tell you about things that we're watching or things that we're playing or things that we read things that we're thinking about sometimes they're related to to the main episode sometimes they're not so tell me, Alex, what are you bringing to Contrarians After Hours this time? It's something I'm ashamed that I didn't bring to the table the last time we recorded because it's about two weeks old. We're going to talk about the Halloween Kills trailer, baby. Oh, all right. You're going to have to tell me. Do I need to watch the trailer before you tell me about it? Or should I just let you kind of paint the picture for me? You haven't watched it yet? Uh, no, you know me. I, I, I don't go seeking trailers. I let them happen to me whenever they happen. We might actually do like a, a watch along before we record. It's two minutes long, but being that you just went through. Yeah, I want you to watch it because being that we just went through the Halloween arc that we did. I want I want you to see how many of like the homages and things that you get in it. OK, am I going to uh, react like Joaquin when the alien shows up? I'm going to cover my mouth. <laughs> just back away from your chair. It's going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> just dragging my microphone with me. <laughs> what about yourself? So I've been really busy i just started a a new job and that's been kind of keeping me busier than usual which means i haven't been able to watch as many things as usual which is why for after hours this time as it's happened a couple times before i'm bringing a movie that i didn't like but that i would like to talk to you about uh, Mm -hmm. which is spree uh if you have a hulu subscription a hulu account that's that's where I watch it, and you might have seen it show up in your landing at some point. Uh, I'll tell you the story of how I, I arrived to Spree and why I kept watching it even after I was <laughs> pretty much done. It's kind of a I guess a comedy slash thriller slash slasher. It stars one of the guys from Stranger Things, Steve. I don't know if you remember Steve from Stranger Things, but he's the the popular guy that then becomes not so popular as the seasons go on. Is and, he built? Uh, uh, from all the archetypes of an 80s character? Is that what happens in Stranger Things? <laughs> yes. Is there any like bit of originality to it? <laughs> that narrows it down for sure. <laughs> the, the original part is that the actor went on to, to start in a shitty movie that you can watch on Hulu. <laughs> because God that bless. didn't happen in the 80s. But yeah, he he, he plays uh, an Uber driver that, that also happens to have uh, dreams of being a social media influencer. And... Uh, in the process that of trying is to get the most like 2020 <laughs> shit ever. Yep. yep. I, I, I know I have your attention already, so I'm not going to say anything else until we get to after hours. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Uh, and then I'll just give you a little bit of a a little bit of lip service to In the Heights, which is the complete opposite of Spree. In the Heights is a movie that uh, pretty much anybody uh, that pays attention to what's playing these days knows about the the new musical. Well, the new musical adaptation of Lee Manuel Miranda's first, I think it was his first musical on Broadway. Uh, he's the guy that, of course, is now known for Hamilton. But they went back and adapted his his first play. And uh, it was pretty good. I'll tell you a little bit about that one. That one's on uh, HBO Max. So In the Heights, Spree, and the Halloween Kills trailer. We're going to be talking about that on After Hours. And you can have access to that and all the other cool stuff, including uh, a Patreon-exclusive episode about Ad Astra. It should be dropping sometime this month. You have access to all that if you go to patreon.com slash contrarianprime and join the Contrarian Supplements. Shit's cheap, man. I make food analogies every week, but I'm running out of them to make because I, it's making me very self-conscious about how much fast food I eat that I'm able to just like pit, quote these fast food menus page and verse. <laughs> so I'm just going to start telling you that our Patreon's fucking cheap for a dollar. Scrounge up some change. Go over there. Throw it our way. Listen to our exclusive content. Tell us what to watch and what to discuss. I always predicate it with the more you pay, the more you get, the more deep coverage you'll get. Uh, And I also try to always give the disclaimer. That's not a challenge. I always use like Cannibal Holocaust in a Serbian film as like, (laughs) don't do that. Unfortunately, one of our patrons has (laughs) brought something potentially even worse to us that I'm going to have to suffer through for your enjoyment. We love what we do. We know you love what we do. So come on and give back. And we will give back in return. Patreon.com slash Contrarian Prime. And I just remember, Alex, we, as of this month, I guess, we finally started doing our, our long time coming, long time promised video reviews. So so that's it. There's even more content now on our Patreon page. So yeah, like Alex said, Patreon.com slash Contrarian Prime. Join the, the Contrarian Supplements. And now, Alex, take us into real talk. All right. As I mentioned in the first portion, Contrarian's Corner. Signs was released on August 2nd of 2002 with a fairly modest budget, considering what all on the table there was here of $72 million raked in the coin, bringing in a return of $410 million. And my Shyamalan's third movie, and we had talked about it in the first portion and on some of our other Shyamalan discussions, even to the point of waxing or waning poetic, depending on your prerogative about... Uh, M. Night Shyamalan in this moment in time. I don't know if we've had something like that since. Has there been a director that like people thought was going to be? Maybe that's the thing. Since Shyamalan, everyone's like tapered their expectations or just. Mm, there, there are a couple of uh, tellingly, I think, horror directors. Because I know Ari Aster, he's, he's on that track. I mean, he only has two movies so far. But, you know, he's being hailed as the next big thing. Not by you or me. Uh, I meant more in line of like actual huge mainstream directors. I, because you know, on a smaller scale, people are, including myself, are all jazzed up on um the Safdie brothers mm. for one fleeting moment in time. I thought Nicholas Wendy Grafen was the truth. Oh um, God! But <laughs> you but, fool! <laughs> I was. My point being. It's one of those things that time potentially is already kind of eradicated in the sense of these kids today 
we'll never really know what it was like when M night Shyamalan came on the scene. And after this movie, it was like exactly taking the words out of your mouth. And one of those reviews earlier, Hitchcock Spielberg, we, we got a new one on our hands, boys. We got a new contender here and quickly that was gone and never came back. Um, but in this moment in time, Julio, and we're going to get to the reviews, the ones that didn't like it. When you saw this movie in the theater, initially coming out of it, what were your thoughts of it? And more importantly, what were your thoughts of where M night Shyamalan was going to take us? Uh, I, I was, I was all in going into uh science. I remember that because I loved unbreakable the sixth sense. I'm, not I wasn't that crazy about like I thought it was I've always said this about the sixth sense and I mean I haven't seen it since I've seen bits and pieces right and that's why I'm excited to revisit it in a couple episodes but to me my line about the sixth sense was just great twist but without that twist the movie's nothing and mm-hmm. I think that that's extremely harsh we'll see yeah I mean especially because I've I've grown to appreciate uh Tony Collette so much as an actress that I'm pretty sure that if nothing else when i rewatch the movie in a couple weeks i'm going to enjoy her performance or appreciate her performance a lot more so to me it was like you know it was building up from the sixth sense which i thought was a good movie with a great twist to unbreakable which i thought was a great movie with an okay twist maybe (laughs) and then to science which was an entertaining movie with a kind of a head scratcher of a twist and i walked away thinking that's fine. It's it's good. I mean, you know, they can't all be unbreakable. You know, not all stories are going to be unbreakable and not all twists are going to be the sixth sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but science was still like pretty solid. I remember liking it. Never watched it again since. And uh, kind of like I referenced in Contrarian's Corner when we were first getting started. I, I've run into people that love science the way I love Unbreakable. And I've run into people that are just like, oh, yeah, science is just, you know, it's there. It's not the village, so it's not like part of Bat Shyamalan, but it's but it's not the Sixth Sense or Unbreakable. So to me, it was just one of those. It, it, it was like nobody talks about science in, in in a way like you know to rather nobody has long conversations about science. <laughs> you know, if you really want to get into the Shyamalan of it, you talk about the Sixth Sense or Unbreakable or or the Village or Last Airbender <laughs> and so on. But but science is kind of like to me at least my perception is always like it's there. It's not a Bash Shyamalan movie. It's not one of his best, but it's still good. And that's kind of how I felt coming out of it the first time I watched it. Interesting. I think this may be an interesting discussion that we're about to have. Um, <laughs> so before we get to it, 74% on Rotten Tomatoes. So there, it wasn't without its doubters or detractors. What were some of the negative comments on this film? I'm going to start with uh, Christopher Smith from Bangor Daily News, Maine, who simply says, Crap Circles. Okay. <laughs> That's just setting the tone. Next, Joe Lozito from Big Picture Big Sound says, Mr. Shyamalan is a gifted writer and filmmaker. He definitely has more great films in his future. However, he may need to take a step away from the paranormal thriller. Eh, I mean, I don't know that the genre was a problem. As we saw as his career developed, I think it's yeah. more of a, a the writing Daniel Etherington from Film4.com says, Shyamalan continues his run of moody, skillfully constructed pictures. Pity about plot weaknesses and the pretentious dialogue. And we we, we have to talk about the Shyamalan dialogue. We, we kind of talked about it a little bit during our Happening 
segment on the live stream for the cure, but it happens again here. I mean, it happens in every movie. I, I think that it's it's just gonna be a constant. It needs to be addressed again and again. Another short but sweet one. Jeet Thahil from Rediff.com says Shyamalan should stop trying to please his mom. <laughs> what? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the what the history is behind that that opinion. Is his mom really religious? Is that what's happening? I don't know. And finally, <laughs> Ben Kennisberg from East Hampton Independent says, the religious statement is so out of keeping with the tone of the rest of the movie that it seems unintentional. I mean, that is that is definitely a talking point. The, the religious undertones, overtones, all sorts of tones in this movie, which, I mean, I'm not going to say that I didn't notice them the, the first time I watched it because it's, I mean, how much more clear can you get when Mel Gibson is playing a priest or a preacher? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're literally, you know, he he talks to God <laughs> several times <laughs> during the movie. Uh, but still, I want to say that I, it's not that I felt it more on this rewatch, but more like I took it more seriously or I realized that it was, I, I felt that Shyamalan wanted me to take it more seriously than I did the first time I watched the movie. What was What was your experience? It's it's weird. Like, have you ever known someone that had like a crisis of faith? I mean, shit. I had one. I, I I mean, I don't know if it's a crisis of faith because that kind of implies that it's that it was ongoing. I I can relate to like the one moment where you know his big Oscar clip, the first one we called out, which is you know, I used to believe, and now I don't. <laughs> But that's it, you know, like mm-hmm. not to get like super like metaphysical and super religious or whatever. But to me, yeah, like, yeah. that the idea of, OK, well, if you're going to believe on a higher power that you owe good things to, then it kind of stands to reason that believing in that, then that means that you have to believe that that same higher power is allowing bad things to happen. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, if that's the scenario, I'd rather just not believe in anything. <laughs> Which is a little mm-hmm. bit like what he does in this movie, right? Like it's like, okay, well, if God allowed my wife to die such a horrible death, such a nonsensical death, then I'd rather not believe in God. So yeah, I mean, I I got that, and I I totally got that. What I didn't get the first time I watched the movie, and I got this time, was that this might be just a very. I didn't realize that it could be such a personal look into. And that Shyamalan's beliefs, you know, like, is this what he really thinks? You know, is is this how he thinks that the world works, that the universe works? Does he believe what the movie's telling you, that, you know, everything happens for a reason and that, you know, well, even the most horrible things actually down the line can have a payoff that makes them worth it somehow. I don't subscribe to that line of thinking, and I, but the idea that, I guess it's kind of bold, you know, for him to go like, well, this is what I believe. I'm going to make a movie about aliens, but it's also about just how I think that the world works. Because it's either he did that or he made a movie that says that, but not because he believes it, just because he's like, well, you know, and, and that's that's how I get to the twist at the end. I'm, t- I'm having a hard time, like, in a, as I did watching this, this movie's, I don't know if this movie's so much more thought-provoking and interesting than I remember, or if I'm just older and I care more about that stuff now. Mm-hmm. And also, just not expecting it. We're on the 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 other side of the Shyamalan <laughs> experiment, and so there's a lot that um, 
that you forget about and what he was capable of. And one of the first things I texted you about this was I could not believe he was capable of creating an atmosphere like he did in the first 20 minutes of this movie. Mm -hmm. Now there's probably some people into that. Probably there are some people that that doesn't work for and that's fine. But going from like the happening and last airbender were on top of being bad. They were just boring as sin. (laughs) And then just like a movie where I even know what happens in the end, like the build in this, the atmosphere and the tension he's able to create. And it's a good looking movie. The way it's shot is good uh, as opposed to just like those the happening where you just got obsessed with those like up the nose shots. Like, for example, <laughs> the way that sh- that shot is framed of Mel Gibson in the pharmacy. I, I don't know. I think that's awesome. And like the a lot of the scenes I called out in the first portion, the Oscar clips are great. And oh, yeah, it's um, but that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is this whole crisis of faith and identity that comes along with this movie that. I feel like any sensible person that's always going to be something that looms in their mind of like, well, if there is a God, why does he allow X to happen? Mm -hmm. And why does it allow it to happen to me? And I think that's an interesting conundrum that the movie faces its viewer with because and you couldn't have done this if you didn't have an actor as good as Mel Gibson. But at least to me, you feel that struggle in this movie that he has, but it's coupled with this other insane shit that's going on. So it's like this blend of real relatable struggles in life on different levels. I'm not saying everyone's gone through a crisis of faith, but there's just these issues of believing in anything. It doesn't have to be mm. religious. So what he's going through And on top of that, having to deal with the trauma of his wife's death, being a single parent. And then you add on to that this cataclysmic event that no one can relate to, this looming presence of life outside of Earth that we didn't know about coming in to potentially eradicate the human race. This is so much for this character to take on, and it would only work with someone who's as good of an actor as Mel Gibson is. Again, we're not defending this guy's personal habits and what he does in his Mm -hmm. real life, but like... I was so blown away by this because, again, it's been forever since I've seen it. And I think I just I care more now than I did when I was younger about movies and shit. And the whole monologue and, you know, I'm kind of tripping over my words here because this is something that I can kind of relate to because my my adult life has been kind of a journey in faith and what I believe in learning about what I believe, but also how to be realistic about it. and how how to apply that to my real life. And I'm not practicing. I don't go to church or anything like that on a regular basis. I feel like I do have a certain set of beliefs, um, but then keeping that all in check and in balance with, like I said, realistic expectations of what that means. It doesn't mean it's going to stop everything. So when I do see and hear about people that are faced with situations like this and then lose their faith, that's completely relatable. Like the to me, the weirder thing is when people are like, "You can't lose faith, man. You can't give up hope." Mm-hmm, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So, seeing as how there's not really that many, but the townspeople, the characters that surround him, are just kind of like almost in a way dismissive of his choice to not believe anymore. They're just like, eh, "No, you're still Father Graham or whatever." It adds this whole interesting wrinkle to it that 
there were certain points in this movie that I had to remind myself it's a movie about aliens. Like I kept trying to think about <laughs> what Mel Gibson's going through and, you know, my thoughts on that. And if I had met a character like Graham and he told me his story, what I would say to him in a conversation about belief and faith. And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'm not going to, you watch your wife die in front of your eyes and no one could do anything. It's I'm not going to tell you what to believe and what to do. But the interesting thing about this movie is that it comes back around with the whole idea of, you know, divine intervention or however you want to word it and kind of puts an interesting spin on that towards the end. Not to the point. One of the things I want to get across is I'm leaning heavily into this whole religion aspect of the movie the movie itself at no point to me was heavy-handed or went overboard with any of the religious aspects it was really that's just my interpretation as a viewer is one of the aspects of the story i clung to was that because i found it so fascinating um do you think it goes overboard or leans too far into the religious aspect no i I mean i don't think it's subtle about it but it never i never felt that i was being preached to i -hmm. just felt that the the conclusion that we arrived to was that's where the movie kind of the movie and I clash, and it's not necessarily not, not in a bad way. It was just more that you know the movie got to the end, and the movie and I like locked eyes, and I just went, I disagree, <laughs> and I walked away. <laughs> but but you know that didn't affect my enjoyment of the movie like i have problems with the movie but they have nothing to do with the uh with its stance or what i read it as its stance on you know religion or like its beliefs like i my my main thought was when i was over it was just okay does m night Shyamalan believe in this or was this just a convenient way to frame a story and the conflicts of, you know, and resolve the conflicts that he'd put uh, in front of his characters. And so that was, you know, in a way you could say, well, that doesn't matter. You know, the movie's a movie and whatever Shyamalan believes, that shouldn't be a factor. And it, it is, it isn't, but it is just because, you know, I can't help but wonder, especially because like I said, the first time I watched the movie, that didn't even occur to me. You know, when the movie mm-hmm. was over. I think I was the first time I was just still trying to piece together how it all worked out. But as far as it being overtly religious, no, I don't. I don't think so. I think it's, it's just it's an alien movie. I mean, everything that you said, I agree a hundred percent. But I'm curious to see if the movie lost you somewhat the way it lost me, which is like, uh, maybe it's because I'd seen it before all the way. But I think that it gets the more you learn about the situation, the harder it is to buy into it. And uh, I know I didn't want to like, especially on Contreras Corner, I didn't want to like fall back on like the the easy shots that everybody takes at signs, which is like, oh, well, mm-hmm. if the aliens are allergic to water, why did they visit a planet that's like three quarters water, right? And and so on. And to me, that's kind of a, I mean, yes, but also it's besides the point because you could justify it. You know, you could just say like, well, Earth was the only planet that they could get to. You know, we don't know what's going on in these aliens' lives. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like, they're like, well, this is not ideal, but it's the best we can do. So we're going to Earth. The thing is, I felt that, especially because they call out War of the Worlds a couple of times in the movie. So I felt that this was a little bit of Shyamalan's take on War of the Worlds, where, you know, it's like aliens attack, we're overpowered, it all seems hopeless, and then oh, well, they get sick because they were not prepared for the bacteria that we are used to, and then they die. And to me, that story works because, Mm -hmm. you know, it just makes sense. It's like, well, they wouldn't know about bacteria. It it just seems like just 
it just gives enough detail about that. The the way that here he kind of starts trying to explain more of what's going on with the aliens, even though it's not a 100% explanation. It's a lot of the Culkin brother kind of theorizing and sharing what he sees in his book. On the surface, the idea, I like the idea that, oh, they can't afford for the planet to be ruined by a massive war. So instead, they're going to go really low key and invade us without destroying the planet. But then once you take that like a step further and you think about it a little more, it's like, that is very silly. <laughs> they're they're literally, they're not going to like, they're just going, you know, like I said, in the corner, like door to door, kind of like engaging one on one and subduing people like one by one. That seems really weird. And, uh, but that seems to be kind of like what the movie was saying. So as the movie progressed, that side of the story was kind of like losing me. But then on the other side, though, as the movie progressed, the emotional moments were gripping. And so it didn't matter that I was... It didn't matter that the alien invasion was looking pretty flimsy because what really mattered was what, what was going on with Mel Gibson and with Hooking Phoenix. It actually snuck up on me, man, because I the first half of the movie, you know, before he gets to the big centerpiece where he tells him we're alone, uh, I was just like, okay, this is fun. It's, uh, you know, it's what I remembered, and it's about the aliens, and, you know, and then it got to the moment where Mel Gibson actually acts and has, like, this this big moment, and and then he has a few more throughout the movie. And I was, by the end, I was emotional, even though I was 100% aware that it was just, by then, you know, by the time that you get to... Uh, him holding Corey Culkin. He, they're outside and he thinks that he might be dead and he starts he starts talking to God again and you know begging him to like not do this and whatever. And in it, it this is all surrounded with all the like bullshit with like the water and the alien and all that stuff, you know. Uh but the emotional part is just like this guy who's like been rejecting God and suddenly he's like I don't care. Just save my kid. <laughs> I'm like, I'm swallowing mm-hmm. my pride. I don't care what happened with my wife. I just, can you please don't do this? And that whole thing, like, that got me emotional. And it was fascinating because, you know, a big chunk of the movie was not quite working for me, but still the emotional undercurrent was. And, and that was great. And I, and I don't even agree with uh, Mel Gibson's beliefs. <laughs> you know, it's not that, oh, yeah, you know, I've been there. It was more, I, I was seeing somebody who had faith in something and then, rejected it was angry and then kind of like embraced it again i don't know it was just fascinating and 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 it wasn't even something that was mirroring my life particularly closely before i forget uh i was one of the people when i was a youngster in college and disparaging of this uh movie the whole why would they come to earth if it's (laughs) three quarters water that was my fallback argument and now my stance is i don't there's i've never encountered an alien who knows and I mean, that's always the thing with the War of the Worlds. They got here and there was their immune system wasn't prepared for our air is basically the truncated version of what happened. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what wiped them out. And here, maybe they had never encountered anything like water before. So they didn't know what it was. It could have been <laughs> some cool like jello, like something they could eat. <laughs> and they just saw it and were like, hell yeah. Um, so well, that- but see, uh, my counter, and not that I agree that it doesn't matter, but my counter is that the, the movie actually explains that the the crop circles are supposed to be markings; they're supposed to be guiding them away from water. Like that's why at some point they somebody theorizes, oh, they might. It looks like they they're afraid of water because this map that they built with the crop circles stays away from 
water areas. But see, he doesn't need to do that. He didn't need to put that in. Like I, I, I think I guess my main problem with it, as much of a problem as you know it could be, is just that I, I feel that the movie worked better whenever he didn't explain anything. And I think the movie would work better if he didn't explain anything. It's just like we don't know why the crop circles are there. The idea of like these aliens come in and we never know what's happening, and then one day they leave. That's that's to me like super creepy, and I don't need to know anything. Which is kind of what happens with War of the Worlds, as far as I remember. They show up, they destroy shit, they die. <laughs> we never had a chance, but somehow we survived. And here, there are moments where it feels like that, you know, especially when it's just uh, Mel Gibson and Hawking Phoenix and, and you know two kids like in the in the basement, and it really, if you don't know how the movie ends, you're like, oh well, I guess this is it. Really, they're just kind of they're going to die together, but there's no way that these four individuals or even planet earth based on everything we know are going to uh triumph they're not gonna overpower the, the aliens that's that's creepier to me when you don't know anything but instead you know there's like enough rationalization of the aliens's uh actions that it kind of takes away a little bit of the magic for me yes i really didn't like the alien uh, the showdown with the alien and the family at the end that that's that is what took me out of it. If they just woken up and the aliens were gone, mm-hmm. like, cool. That That is how I would have preferred the movie would have ended. And if it ended then, I think it would have fallen pretty much smack dab in, within the realms of the Mattis rule and been right about 90 minutes. But there are some aspects of this movie that you had mentioned. It's uh, I'm fine with them not explaining. You said something to the effect of, you know, it, it doesn't need to be explained or I'm fine with him not explaining it any further. Like the end where he's a priest again, mm-hmm. one shot. It's all you need to tell that story. And I appreciate that they didn't like, good to have you back, Reverend. Uh, you know, anything really heavy handed like that. And um, he goes to the pharmacy and it's like, oh, well, it'll be ten ninety nine, father. And he turns like, I said, don't call me. And then he smiles. <laughs> <laughs> and then Waterloo by uh, ABBA starts playing over the end credits. <laughs> So there's that. A lot of the stuff with the kids is very subtle as far as their relationship with their father that doesn't need to explain. Like the dinner scene. Let's just go ahead and talk about the dinner scene there. That That's possibly, from an acting perspective, the best scene in the whole movie uh, as, as far as a collective effort mm-hmm. uh, as everyone involved. And I mean, Abigail Braslin, as we know, is a fine actress now. And so it shouldn't be surprising that she was fairly solid and beyond her years when she was five years old. But you get the impression that this tension and resentment of the kids between from Bo and uh, Morgan have just been building towards their dad. But it's not like I say this all the time. Movies have just the level of respect for the viewer's intelligence. A lot of modern films that I have seen has is so low. And with this and again, we're talking about M. Night Shyamalan, who eventually just became lowest common denominator <laughs> type thing. And with this, it's just like. He's just dropping you in the middle of this family that has been going through these issues and these struggles with the loss and you know trauma of losing their mother and the man losing their wife, losing his wife. And then the scene is like the culmination of that. But at no point in the movie does it like beat you over the head with any of this. So for someone like myself watching this, it makes this scene so much more impactful because you feel like you understand it, even though you haven't seen all of the dynamics and you know what led to this head, so to speak. And the whole like idea behind the scene is awesome, just like um, not awesome, but you know it's very just well written. The whole idea mm-hmm. is Mel Gibson realizes, well, this might really be it. So we all should, he, he, you know, he poses it to his kids and his brother. 
it's basically signing them up for their their last meal, but he does it in like this nurturing fatherly way to make it seem like a fun thing. And that that whole shot of him, his profile as he's explaining to them, like, you know, whatever you want to eat. And he's explaining, I'm going to have a cheeseburger with bacon, extra bacon. And he mm-hmm. starts smiling. It's so good. Uh, I think I'm with you most of the way. I think I enjoyed it more than you did on the whole. But exactly what you're saying is true. There were parts of it that took me out. But these scenes that I was able to connect with, I don't know about you, but when I was dialed in, this movie, when it hits, it fucking hits. I, I Yeah, I agree. That's that's why I said I, it snuck up on me. I, I wasn't even aware that I was dialed in, in a way. You know what I mean? Like, I was... I was kind of half rolling my eyes at what was happening during the end, like in a in a playful way. I wasn't just like disgusted by the movie. And then, like I said, it just got I got emotional because it was you know this father really. It wasn't just that because I knew that the kid was going to survive, but it was just that I guess I'd forgotten the arc of the relationship between Gibson and God, you know, and just that mm-hmm. push and pull that goes throughout the movie, and to have that final turn be about him just uh you know just saying okay whatever just save him you know i could do without the line of like oh somebody saved you like i didn't need that but i think that when people like if people accuse it of being just like going overboard they might be pointing at that moment but i mean it's fine like the rest of it was was good let's, let's talk about hawking phoenix for a second because i was gonna say speaking of taking you out of the movie let's talk about m night Shyamalan's <laughs> on-screen persona but but i want to do a Joaquin first because Before I we get to Joaquin real quick. I just this is going to be real quick because we just talked about Abigail Breslin and honestly, there's not too much to talk about. She's very good where she's at. That line we mentioned in the first portion, the one that's from the trailer. Uh, there's a monster outside my room. Can I have a glass of water? Do you think that was intentionally written as a run-on sentence, or do you think that was just the best take they got of her doing that? I've always thought that it was like intentionally distressing in the sense that it was meant to be this long run-on sentence. I. I don't know because I, I, well because here's the thing like back in 2002 I would have said it's intentional because I believe that Emma Shyamalan could do no wrong or could do very little wrong or there's no you know and he was to me in my mind he was like a, a really good director but then having seen what happens later I mean I just don't know anymore I think kind of touching a little bit on the on the thing about dialogue I think he has a very specific writing style and mm-hmm. uh, and a very specific way of directing actors. And sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't work. I think it depends on the actor. A lot of it depends on the actor. I think that Bruce Willis, for the most part, somebody like Bruce Willis, for example, you know, he he works. Like the dialogue works. The M. Night Shyamalan cadence, the structure of the dialogue, and the way that Shyamalan directs him works. Same thing with Mel Gibson here, and actually, and especially Hooking Phoenix. Like I think that they they managed to really make it their own. I don't know what it is with you know. She was so young, uh, Abigail Breslin. What kind of technique do you have at five? So in a way, right, that means that you have to put it on Shyamalan. I don't know how many takes he did. I don't know what direction he gave her. But what you got there was probably a lot about, you know, had to do with him, coupled with, like, her natural talent or whatever. But then, you know, the question is, like, why doesn't he do that all the time? <laughs> yeah. If he's capable of crafting that moment of dialogue, you know, with a, with a, with a kid, then why why did he allow the happening to happen <laughs> like the performances that happening or or the performances in uh last airbender which you know had like three kids kind of really struggling with the way he had written the screenplay so i don't know i, re- I really don't know I, I i i agree with you that it works it's great 
but I don't know if it was a happy accident or if it was just like, this is how you say it. Yeah. It, it's certainly fascinating when you think of the ne- machinations and his style of filmmaking. Well, but, but yeah. what, were, what were in the dialogue, though? And this kind of will bridge it to Hawking Phoenix, but also kind of touching on uh, the Culkin brother. Because I think that you can tell the different levels of, you know, acting prowess. And of course, Culkin was like, I don't know how old he was, but he was a teenager, you know. It's not that I want to compare his, what he's doing with the with his lines, you know, versus what Gibson is doing or Hawking Phoenix is doing. But to me, out of those four, out of the, the, the main four characters, I, I felt that the one actor that was somewhat struggling with the with the way that Shyamalan writes his dialogue was was Corey Culkin and uh not to where it ruined the movie for me but you know there was a when Mel Gibson and Hawking Phoenix speak their lines like they sound like people and when uh Abigail Breslin speaks her lines she sounds like a little girl like, like a very charismatic mm-hmm. little girl so she gets she can get away with you know not not sounding like an adult because she's not but then Corey Culkin doesn't sound like a regular kid. He sounds like he's reading a script, not in a bad way again, but he do- he's, he doesn't sound naturalistic the way that the others do. And so I think that's a lot of it's in the writing. You know, I, I think that just the way that Ebna Shyamalan constructs his sentences and the way that he delivers information, uh, it can be really clunky if you have an actor that has trouble making the dialogue his own or her own. With Corey Culkin, I think it was just kind of like straddling that line. Again, it, it never came close to ruining the movie for me, but it was like noticeable. It's it's just one of the things. I don't know that I don't think that dialogue is Emma Shyamalan's strength. Certain actors can just basically take it and, and do wonders with it. And and that's how you get like really cool lines. But happy accidents then in that I absolutely loved the they have a problem with pantry doors line. Mm-hmm. I know you. That's one of the lines you called out in Contrarian's Corner about the almost comedy. But I love that so much of that that scene because he's asking those questions in like a hypothetical nature to his son about you know if they did come what it would be like. <laughs> and then when he sits down and says that, and then they all realize that he's encountered one of them, and then it fades to black. Like that might be my favorite singular moment in the movie. I think that's great. So do you think that's by design? You think he just had Mel Gibson deliver it really well? Because I'm I'm in agreement with you, and especially with what we've done so far in M. Night and the movies he's written. Tarantino, he is not. So do you think <laughs> in a movie like this, in situations where the dialogue does really work, do you think that's more of a compliment on its cast? I think so. Yeah, I mean, not not to take away from like that's a good line, right? And like, if we're gonna assume that that was not Gibson improvising and that was like a line that wasn't the script, th- that is a good line. And you know the way it's set up and everything, that's that's good. But where I have trouble is with the with the chunks of exposition that he has in his movies, you know, from time to time. And uh, and Corey Culkin has a lot of them in this movie because he's explaining what the book says. <laughs> so so I think that that's where where he trips up. I think that Shyamalan is pretty good at I guess maybe trailer moment dialogues, you know, like fucking I see that people and uh yeah. You know, I I'm sure that you can find those moments throughout his movies. But I think that I don't think that he writes dialogue the way people talk. But I also don't think that he writes dialogue in a style that seems kind of graceful. Aaron Sorkin, like he's always like my favorite example. Like Aaron Sorkin or even Tarantino, right? They don't write dialogue the way people talk, 
but they write dialogue the way that you kind of wish people talked. And so you, yeah. you it's very easy to buy it. Like Shyamalan doesn't do that. Shyamalan, Shyamalan's dialogue is just kind of like weird. <laughs> it's just it, and you don't notice if you have a really good actor saying it because they kind of, you know, they just do that thing that actors do where they, they make it their own and now it sounds like, well, maybe I don't talk that way and my friends don't talk that way, but I believe that Mel Gibson talks that way in this movie or Joaquin Phoenix, mm-hmm. you know, they, they'll, they'll say that. But when you have a kid doing it or, or, or an actor that's not comfortable, then it just, it stands out. So Joaquin Phoenix, what do you yes. want to throw on the table about him? I think he's great. <laughs> news. Great of course news. he is. Breaking news. I, I No, but I've forgotten how great he was. To me, Joaquin Phoenix in this movie, from like my first time watching it, like, he was an afterthought. He was the meme and he was just like, oh, before he was a major superstar, you know, or as much of a superstar as he is right now. But I was just so like glued to his character. Like I really liked what he was doing and how there's that moment when uh, they're in the basement and uh, Colkin is having this attack, you know, he's having an asthma attack and they don't have the medicine. So Mel Gibson has to talk him through it. And half the scene, the camera is on Hawking Phoenix, who's just watching his brother deal with this emergency and he is unable to do anything. All he could do is just sit there next to Abigail Wrestling and watch it happen. That's good enough. But then the scene pays off because later on he talks to Mel Gibson and he tells him, like, I watched you lose your faith and I don't ever want to see that again. And just the way he delivers it, like, I, I just, it's a combination of me loving the character and just loving the way that Hooking Phoenix plays him. And he, one that's listened to this podcast at least one or two episodes, no, you're, you're dealing with two huge Joaquin Phoenix fans. So shouldn't be surprising that we find him to be one of the more redeeming parts of the movie. Yeah, and the the meme scene is amazing. It still mm-hmm. is awesome the way it plays out. And like I forgot because like when I see it in just its own, when I see it naked like that, I sometimes think he's kind of hamming it up. But then I remember in the context of the movie, he hasn't like slept in two days, <laughs> yep. and like he's just kind of completely obsessed with everything that's going on. So it, it really works out very well. Uh, Mel Gibson, we talked about facetiously and seriously in the first portion. Mel Gibson is an incredibly talented actor, and obviously due to some of the choices he made in his personal life, this movie could be regarded as his final leading role in the sense of being a, a bona fide movie star and um, or like a superstar. You know, we use those examples like Tom Cruise and mm-hmm. Tom Hanks, that type of thing. At one point in time, he was in that class, that ilk. He makes so much shit in this movie that could potentially unravel work just based on his ability as an actor. Like I mentioned, the dinner scene is great. Uh, him trying to maintain his composure when faced with the guy who killed his wife is also great. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, just the emotions he goes through and you being able to understand what he's going through in almost every scene. It's really good. So much better than I remembered it being it's from a perspective of his singular performance. No need for the dogs to die. No need at all. Like we said in the quarter, it's it's a cheap emotional button to push. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that that scene where he is talking to the alien inside the pantry, like I've told you, that is just. <laughs> if someone told you, and they were clearly terrified, and they were about to like leave their property in an effort to save their life, and you could see this in a genuine sense on their face, and they told you, "There's an alien in my home." <laughs> Do you think you could resist the curiosity and temptation to go see it? I would like to think that if I had a family to get back to, I would. 
because mm-hmm. you know I, I'm responsible for other lives besides my own. And if it was just me, I would go take a peek because <laughs> <laughs> once in a lifetime, potentially once in a lifetime opportunity. For all I know, I'm not gonna wake up tomorrow because the aliens will have bombed the earth or whatever. So Yeah. I had come into this thinking that the dinner scene was my favorite, but hearing you talk about it and then letting it like kind of ruminate that scene in front of the TV is so good from the way it's shot to the whole, the kids are asleep and it's like the adults talking, but it's also both their first time to kind of bear their worry about it Mm -hmm. since the kids are asleep. And it's just, it's M night, man. And Obviously, our retrospective discussion will come at the conclusion with the sixth sense, but coming off of the happening and then the last airbender into this, it does not seem right that the same person could have made all three of those movies. And more in the sense of just this is so good and offers so much, whereas the other two are just like they feel like someone who had never made a movie before was just given carte blanche. Yep. I'm sure there's behind the scenes backstory that that kind of shaped the narrative in a way, but uh, but still, you know, it's just it's the same person. It doesn't feel like it. But speaking of that that same person, I I do want to talk about him taking a a substantial role in front of the camera for the first time in his career. Like uh, uh, I mean, as we know it, I guess you know. Like I said, I don't remember him in the Sixth Sense. I'm sure he's there somewhere, and he has a very tiny part in uh, Unbreakable. But then this was the first time that, you know, he was there. He had dialogue. He was a key player in the story. And from here, the village is more of a small part. And then late in the water, he's like a full-fleshed character. (laughs) How do you feel about it? Because I feel bad about reacting negatively to it. But I do. Like, I watch it. I'm like, what the hell is he doing? That's him, that's Shyamalan. Why is he in front of the camera? To be fair, I feel the same way when I see Tarantino in one of his movies. Uh, even in Pulp Fiction, like Jimmy always kind of like feels like, why didn't you just get an actor? You know? Yeah, I I agree 100%. When the discussion of Pulp Fiction comes up, and to me, obviously, our episode many moons ago, I talked about how it's one of my favorite movies ever, and I still think it's just an absolute masterpiece. When I am posed with the discussion of what's not good about it, the first thing that comes to <laughs> mind is Tarantino in it. Uh <laughs> Because he's a charming and charismatic guy, just like in his interviews and press scrums. I don't, I don't need him saying the n word and like <laughs> talking about coffee in a movie that's already flawless. I don't need him to be the flaw in a flawless movie. Right. I mean, when we're talking about Tom Hanks and that thing you do. Well, Tom Hanks is an amazing actor. Mm-hmm. With this, it's funny. My emotion has always been, well, fuck him for putting himself in a movie uh, in his own movie. <laughs> And then I always thought like he sucked because I still will never get the bad taste of Lady in the Water out of my mouth. Yep. And so going back and rewatching this, he's not bad. The scene with him and Mel Gibson is very good. Mm-hmm. But like I'm, I can't help but just feel fuck you with the whole <laughs> shot of him downtown where they're like, "Who is he? Who is that guy?" It's just like, come on. So when that was still fresh in my mind, the scene that they have that by itself is perfectly fine and very serviceable for the purposes of the movie. I'm in the same boat as you. I was just like, man, just get someone different. It was 2002. Get Breckenmeyer in there and just (laughs) 
uh, Sean William Scott, just someone to you know kind of pop the crowd and pass the time. Um, so yeah, I'm in agreement with you. While the actual delivery of his dialogue is not bad, and I do like the scene with him and Mel Gibson, his introduction is just very silly and uh, exactly what you said. I'm left just thinking, I don't want you in this movie. It's weird, and and I I know that it wouldn't bother me if I didn't know that was him. I would probably think it was cool if uh, you told me that because I mentioned him in Contreras Corner. If you told me that Terrence Malick plays one of the soldiers in the Thin Red Line and has like I don't know ten lines throughout the movie. I'll be like, that's that's a nice piece of trivia. But when you tell me, oh, M. Night Shyamalan is <laughs> it's in that scene with Mel Gibson, I'm like, fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> Give it to Mark Wahlberg. So, Any closing thoughts? Well, I was about to ask you your score. My, my, my closing thoughts are that I walk away from, from this movie holding it in higher regard than I did before. My experience watching it, it has been more intense. Even mm-hmm. though I've been able to spot more flaws in it, like more things that bother me, when it worked, it worked so well that I just I walk away from it thinking that was that was a good movie experience. It's still no unbreakable. Well, but <laughs> but it's it's really good. It's better than good. Like I think it's it's kind of I'm giving it four stars. I think before I would have given it maybe three and a half, but I'm I'm sitting at four now. Yeah, I think in the end here we're closer to what I had hoped we would be then initially i think your tone kind of threw me for a loop there in the beginning about your thoughts on it i think a lot of it is growing up maturing expanding my mind learning <laughs> about things outside my circle and learning about different people and how they how life is different for everybody and that had definitely helped me appreciate it in a way that i certainly did not before and on top of that the acting i came away appreciating at a higher level and the storytelling i came away appreciating at a higher level unfortunately i think part of that is is because i've lived through the bottom of the barrel with m night Shyamalan and seen like <laughs> the worst he can offer and then be like watch this and be like oh man holy shit he could he knew what he was doing at one point in time so i remember always having a certain level of yeah about it and now i'm it's a very positive thing there are some things about it that take me out of it Unfortunately, the CGI has not aged too well. Fortunately, there's no real reliance on it until the last scene of the movie. So that's kind of the good news, bad news of it. Even like the shot of the alien in, um, is it Brazil? Where the Mm -hmm. home video is supposed to be from? Yeah, it's Brazil. That looks fine because it's on like a home held, a handheld camera and it's all grainy and shit. So that looks cool. But then the actual face to face is, it's kind of like, oh, Mel Gibson's yelling at a tennis ball type thing. (laughs) It's somehow what I remembered, but also way better than. So for that, I'm going to give it a B plus. I think there's definitely room for improvement on some of the things in the movie and some obviously some of the things that took me out of it. But man, we said this a few times in real talk here. When this movie's firing, it's firing on all cylinders. And we use the phrase dialed in. When I was into this movie, I was in like there would be portions where I just completely put my notebook down and was just kind of immersed in what was going on. This could upset the balance come the end of this all because I always thought Sixth Sense was like the king, the queen bee, excuse me, <laughs> in the Shyamalan universe. And we may have a new uh, a new king. <laughs> the king is dead. Long live the king. Mel Gibson's here. Great movie. B plus, four stars. If by some bit of fate you haven't yet seen Signs, check it out. Or if you watched so, it a long time ago and it was just kind of okay. 
might want to revisit it 20 years later. I cannot concur with that assessment enough. That is exactly right. What I can say, though, is I hope and wished to have stayed away from what is on deck, the aforementioned After Earth for episode 137. Uh, before we get there, though, we actually have a bonus episode uh, on our path of the contrary. The 2018 Netflix original Extinction, directed by Ben Young and starring Michael Pena and Lizzie Kaplan. Solo. <laughs> who the hell is bringing this to us? This is a, a patron demand. See, this is what happens when you join the cult at the Contrarian Supplements. <laughs> if, the cult of contrary. Yes. If you, if you get on the right tier, you can you can tell us what to watch. In this case, Dan is demanding we watch Extinction, which it's a rotten movie. I don't know anything about it, Alex, other than it stars Michael Pena and Lizzie Kaplan. And one other bit of trivia that I'm going to save for the actual recording. I'm, I'm going to leave you in the dark about that, but I, all right, looking forward to it. It's a Netflix original. I mean, you know, we have a complicated history with those. Sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're not. I'm curious to see what it's going to bring. That is absolutely for sure. Something new. So, uh, I guess I would consider it a blind area. Is it, is it a blind area if you don't know it exists? Uh, I guess that that's the question. Uh, but Extinction is what is up next. Uh, we will get back to the Shamal Anthology after that with episode 137 and After Earth. So I get to delay the inevitable a little bit longer. Uh, <laughs> now you can take us to uh, Perennial Plugs. All right. And we start off with the Festive Years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand and take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Rothgieser is the man behind our logo and all the graphics that you see on our Patreon page, on our webpage, and our upcoming merch. You can check out Hans's work on his website, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-M-O-N-I-O-S. You can contact him on Twitter at mildemonios or email him, mildemonios at hotmail.com. You can ask him to draw you a logo, to draw you some comics, or you can check multiple works he's a novelist he has a whole bunch of zombie novels including his latest zombie short story anthology called zombie zombies where every short story is set in a different area of peru and each short story is written by an author that lives in that area so that's that's its gimmick and then of course he's a podcaster he has uh, his podcast nacion combi and marginal about peruvian current affairs and about economy Hans, thank you for all your support. And lastly, as always, we give thanks to Miss Zoe Perez, who helps out with our social media game. If you haven't already, be sure to head over to facebook.com slash contrarian prime. Uh, we have some exclusive videos there. Those are exclusive to our Facebook page. So be sure to check those out. And of course, on Instagram, we are at contrarian prime. Zoe makes some really cool uh, little videos, audio clips, interactive graphics, and all of the stuff that Julio and I could never figure out how to do. So, Zoe, we appreciate all the work you do for us. Keep up the good work. And with all of our regular pleasantries out of the way, that is going to do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. But even so, I'm